What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. With the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Where is the long ad read? You will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that. Hello, welcome back to the Emulsion Podcast. This is another interview show. Today's guest is Alex Meislish, owner of Equilibrium Farms. Just a small 30 minute jaunt outside of Seattle here. I met Alex through doing a dinner out on their farm in 2017. We've been friends ever since and I'm I'm so grateful to have him here on the show. Not only is he a farmer, but he also has a background in things like psychology and nutrition, which 100% shows in this interview. We talk the farming side versus the business side of owning a farm because as an owner, he is, he's got his hands in the dirt, but he's also an entrepreneur. So he has to think about those higher level tasks. We talk about attending the Blue Hill at Stone Barns conference that happens every year in January. He actually won a lottery to get a chance to go to that conference and the importance of that conference. We definitely spend a lot of time pumping up Stone Barns because uh, he looks at them as kind of an, an, an idol in, in a way. We talk about fine dining experiences living up to the hype. He is incredibly well eaten and he's gone to a lot of really heavy hitting places around the world. We talk about using something called phenology, which is a study that I had personally never heard of. So hopefully that uh, it lends a little nugget to your life. Uh, we talk about dealing with failure, especially from his perspective, because as a chef, you might deal with customers leaving a bad Yelp review or a dish not being served exactly how you want. But Alex deals with Mother Nature impacting his decisions every single day. So we get into that. We talk about criticism and how being someone who loves control grapples with things like emotions and mental health. We talk about partnering with companies like Microsoft in your first few years being open as a farm. We also mentioned this company called Homegrown, which is about an hour into the episode. So to give some context, because I don't think we did well enough, Homegrown is a fast, casual kind a soup sandwich salad spot here in Seattle where they're incredibly hipster, but also super 2019. So you use kind of the automated kiosk to order and they're app sh- they, they integrate very well with a lot of delivery services like uh, Postmates or Uber Eats, but they also use a ton of vegetables from Equilibrium and they have a plot of land on the farm set aside where Alex and the team grows produce exclusively for homegrown and then they use those in their, their brick and mortar locations. So I thought I would add that in because while I was editing this, I realized we never really quite clarified that relationship. So my favorite part of this interview is it's very roundabout nature. I sometimes forget that for all the experience I've had in the chef space and in kitchens, it's kind of been the the same road for me for a long time. And Alex has a couple years on me for sure. And with that comes a lot of varying life experiences. So it might not always seem inherently obvious why he starts to go, go down some of these rabbit holes in our conversation. But He's always able to end up giving a satisfying answer to all my questions, and that's why I really, really enjoyed this interview. You can also presumably tell by the length of this episode that we had a great time together, and we do tease at an episode two quite a bit uh, throughout the conversation. So for everyone that submitted your questions, thank you. I hope that our conversation was able to answer some of them. Uh, For anybody that doesn't know, I poll on Instagram and Twitter uh, when I have new guests, and I use the question features or the thread feature on, on Twitter to make sure that you can submit your 
your questions uh, before I sit down with any of my guests. And because of the truly sporadic nature of this interview, I never explicitly asked anybody's individual questions. But I like to think that there was uh, certain points when I when I inquired along the lines that some of you were wanting to ask for. So feel free to leave as many comments as you want. Let me know what you'd like to include for our next conversation because it's definitely I want to have him on for season two. Um, I really really enjoy his opinion and I really enjoy talking to him. All right, that's enough intro. Here's my conversation with Alex Meislish. I wanted to kind of start with where your how your off season was. Like how how because no. you're in this weird kind yeah. of like it's like a, the reverse of a teacher school year, right? Like you yeah, work all that, summer super hard. Yeah. So how was it? What, what what did you keep keep up with? Yeah, I think about that a lot. How it's it's kind of the reverse of a teacher, mm-hmm. um, and I quite like it because I'm really into the cold. So I'd rather have those three months off. Um, and I think you know being a farmer, we're quite tied to the earth, and um, when the earth rests, the farmer should rest. Sure. So there's a, okay, there's okay. a uh, symmetry there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was good. I mean, it was, um, <clears throat> it was typical in a lot of ways and it was atypical in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, this is on some levels, you know, I've been farming to some degree since 2007. So there's the cycle of the year which showed which showed itself as it normally does um the darkness of the days the cold temperatures the the tomato plants dying you know wow all that stuff the phenology of the season Mm. and then there's the business side of it which is which i haven't been doing for 12 years and that presented um i don't think anything that was unique to business or I just think it was my first time learning some yep. lessons as yep. a, and as a young or new, I don't think I'm young necessarily, but as a new business owner, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, yep. saw things for the first time. Sure. So, so the one thing that I find fascinating about you is that you'll take up your time in the off season to go visit other places or, you know what I mean? Yes. What did you do? What, what did you do any of that this year? And can you tell us a little bit about yeah. what happened? We can go prop number one. Ooh. First guest to bring props. Yeah, when I went to EcoFarm. Wow. Uh, actually, that's not, that, yeah, that's not the beginning of EcoFarm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, give me a second. I'm going to go find prop number yeah, two. Yeah, yeah, do it, do it. This is fascinating. Um, so for everybody that's listening, just listening, January 23rd through 26th in California, EcoFarm Conference, 39th annual EcoFarm Conference. Always, always the uh, last week in January. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay. This is a pamphlet. Diversity is key. 40 years of science tells us about organic agriculture. So I think this is actually a, I mean, Justin, first of all, say, um, you've probably met me a lot. You know that I could, we could probably talk for the next eight hours. <laughs> so I know you've got a six o'clock time cap, yep. but something that I think is also interesting is here's prop number, exhibit number B, B, yeah, um, which is the oh, conference yep. I went to at Stone Barns. Got it. And, um, we might want to meter it because I could spend probably an hour talking about each conference. And I mean, there was a little bit of this kind of Biggie Tupac thing that was going on. You've got East Coast and West Coast. Interesting. Um, and I was and of, I was probably drawing <laughs> comparisons because I wanted to. Yeah. Um, oh, you ate there. And I ate there, too. Wow. Which. Tell me about that meal. Might get to. Yeah. Um, okay. We uh, might as well. Yeah. 
So, uh, so, so anyway, so for the off season, I do travel. Um, I kind of think about just to kind of go back and then we'll get there. I kind of think about, uh, Thanksgiving to Groundhog's Day is like a natural time to take off. Um, a, a big thing for me is road trips and, um, staying connected to, both people in my past as well as on some levels people in my future mm-hmm. and and the something that I really get energized by which I hope we talk a lot about is the farming community got it and it's about meeting up with those farmers and because you can work on a farm but the idea of staging isn't quite the thing right you're so Correct. tied to the land that you don't you don't leave for three weeks during the season I would love to think of a day where that's possible mm-hmm. um, I would love to think of a year if equilibrium takes off and I can get away from it where literally I spend a year you and I spend a year. I mean, I can share sure. all these yeah, things yeah. where I think I'm about to go into something totally off. Uh-huh, so I'll come back. Uh-huh. Where I, but I think farming could be what we've seen with food and chefs over the past 30 years. It's not a far cry that in 10 years we could have a TV show which is going around to various cities and looking at the local farms. Totally. And tying it into chefs in the food scene, but mm-hmm. that it's from a farmer lens. And the reverse could happen while you're away traveling. Your farm could be inhabited by stages from all over the world working to bring a takeover. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, Fascinating idea. Yeah. So Stone Barns. Uh, first year I went to the conference, always known about the Stone Barn. You know, I've, was I've known, this year? This was year this was, year. Okay. Yeah, it was the 2018 conference. Mm. You apply in the lottery. Uh, I won. Whoa. Um, Kelvin from... Uh, from <clears> um, uh, over at Solari was there as well. So yep. they're, they're doing some interesting stuff, which I'll talk about with, with chefs and farms, mm-hmm. which as you might imagine is squarely in the domain of, of where I think of equilibrium. As, sure. Right. Sure. Um, and it was a great conference. I mean, have you been to stone barns? Yes, I've been to eat, but I, um, we arrived, it was in the winter time and we arrived just as the sun was going down. Cause we had like a, I don't know, like an eight thirty reservation. Mm. And so we didn't get a tour of the property. Right. Um, so I didn't get to see any of that behind the scenes stuff, but the meal was like incredible. Yeah. It was one of those meals that actually lived up because there's so much hype, right? There's so, so much. much hype of like, and a lot of it kind of plays to this thing that some chefs will often bastardize. Right. But when you sit down to a table and the, the bread service comes with butter from two different cows and you can actually taste the difference. Mm. That's when it's like, whoa! Like it's these all, guys, yeah. Those guys are really tied to the essence of um, life, really. Yep. Right? I mean, they, yep. they, they individuality speaks, right? And um, we accept that with humans. We accept that with dogs, right? When we could probably find a point where we don't, right? I don't know if we we might accept that with salamanders, sure, sure. right? But at some point, we, yeah. we, we unify things, and a carrot is a carrot. Mm-hmm. And they are changing that a bit. Um, so so let's talk about the meal first. Yeah, um, yeah. So I went the year before. Mm-hmm. And it was a life change. I mean, it, was, it lived up to the hype. Absolutely. Service was impeccable. It was, to me, you know, I, I, I went to the French Laundry once, mm-hmm. and... I, I, I get fine dining to a degree as a, as a diner and, and service. Um, and I'm sure some of your listeners, you know, will disagree and that's, that's fine. I, mm. I, I'm not trying to bastardize anyone. I understand. Uh, I don't even think I understand maybe what Thomas Keller has quite fully offered, but, sure. I, but I accept that he's offered a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, and it felt like perfection, but yep. it felt like someone that knew, knew that some, a place that knew they were being perfect. God. And, uh, to be honest with you, the feeling I had was that that we were 
they wanted to flip the table, which which if I'm paying six hundred dollars, yep. I should never that, yep. that should never cross my mind. Yep. We were an early yep. five thirty seating. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, it was like college friends, and we probably smoked a joint on the way over yeah, there, yeah, right? Yeah. So like, I mean, but it was like my college friends that are like high end business people, so. Mm-hmm. That got us the reservation. So, like, there was a level of professionalism that they brought, but still it was like, there was a weird energy there, right? It felt perfect, and white tablecloth doesn't do it for me anymore. Mm. I get that it's what perfection should be. Right. Um, it's in the way that I get that an opera might be perfect, but that doesn't mean that it's going to resonate with me. I still might rather go to a... Um, <clears throat> A local coffee shop and listen to a yep. open mic. So yep. it's just a stylistic thing. Going to Stone Barns, the perf- the the it was that level of perfection and Uber service, but with a casual, with such a formal casualness. Mm-hmm. It's like you can be casual, but only if it's intentionally casual. Correct. And they had a way of, I mean, mind you, we also went there and helped them put straw on their garlic for the three hours beforehand. I really wanted with my friend yep. to do some farm work mm-hmm. before we. We worked mm-hmm. or before we ate. ate. Um, I just felt like for her and even for me, mm-hmm. being a part of that, it's something that when I worked at the herb farm in the farm there, it just there was it's a it's a vertical integration. You're you're one step closer. Yep. And it just it you know no we didn't eat any of the garlic that night, but it it connected us sure. in a different sure. way. And I was blown away. Everyone kind of seemed to know. We might have seen seven, eight, ten different people, and they all kind of knew where the conversation had left off with the last person, as though they were going back to a a, a monitor and typing in something Interesting. or interfacing. And but it wasn't forced. Yeah. Sometimes that can like fall super flat. Uh huh. Um, so the service was great because it's an elegant room. It's um, not too austere, mm-hmm. but it you know you're you you know you're in. A high, cl- a high class place. Yep. And then the food starts coming, and it, well, I mean, then the menu comes. Yeah. Right. I mean, let's go it's there. Totally different. Which <laughs> anything you've ever. Yeah. Which is field notes. Yep. Right. Yep. yep. And um, is is incredible in my mind. Right. I mean, I, I think something we might end up talking about is is what Equilibrium is trying to do. And I think with our Under the Walnut series, one of the things I'm thinking about is here's an opportunity, which is you know obviously something that I'd love to talk about because that's, mm-hmm. that's how you and I know each yeah, other. Yeah. Um, here is something that has the opportunity to deconstruct what we... To, it presents the opportunity. You don't have to do it. And the fun thing about Under the Walnuts and being at each of them is I see each chef's take on this. Mm-hmm. But to me as a secret ideal and what I hope the chef's recognize is there's an opportunity to deconstruct a dining service. Yep. And I believe that with all the creativity that people do in the kitchen and on the plate and even necessarily off the plate with design, most restaurants, you walk up to a front door, you call beforehand and you make a reservation. You walk up to the front door and you're met by someone typically at a stand. You're then taken to your seat and handed a menu a server then comes up to you there still is these elements that are just there with all that creativity all of those are almost at every single restaurant right, right, there's right. a few in my mind i'm sure, sure i'd be interested to hear your take yeah. a few that have deconstructed mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. what it, what are the walnuts can do is it can deconstruct that a little totally. bit you still need you can't just show up you gotta yep. buy a yep. ticket yep. but after that it's like mm-hmm. we don't have the six walls here yep. yep yep so what can we do totally and to that end Stone Barnes does that a little bit. Mm. The menu part is a little bit mm-hmm. of a tweak in a way that I haven't. It starts quite you seen off it. on uneven ground, right? Yeah, in a good way. Yeah, and tells you this is 
there's a playfulness to it. There's a you know, there's something ephemeral about it. It was very fun watching the other tables that, you know, we got the, um, the red pepper egg, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Um, in the kitchen, they cooked two of them Wow. and they did, they cooked two eggs, six minutes, six and a half minute eggs, right. They were layering a bunch of ideas on the red pepper, the time of cooking and uh, Shabu, my friend I was with got to pick the egg and she picked the red pepper. Wow. One, right. And so it was great. You know, and that was the moment where Dan came back and we were sitting right there by the library mm. And, um, you know, he knew that we were at the farm that day. Sure. Right? And it felt, that felt a little bit, uh, you know, he was seeing everyone or mm-hmm. maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've actually since asked and he doesn't necessarily see everyone. Right. So that was cool to hear. Mm-hmm. But then I look at my table, uh, look at the table next to me and they get the red pepper egg as a dried salted egg that's shaved over a dish. So you start seeing all of these elements that show up everywhere, mm-hmm. but never in the same orientation. Right. Um, or in the same um, permutation. Yep. Yep. And I thought that was super cool. Sure. Right. So everyone's going to walk away talking about red pepper, but one person got it as a six minute egg. Another person got it as shaving on a vegetable dish. Yep. Um, and so, but the food was great, you know, and I think a lot of your listeners, and as you probably know, I mean, you know, veg on a stick, you know, mm-hmm. highlighting veg, mm-hmm. highlighting the full plant, um, you know, cooking things to perfection. It all felt perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but not in a French laundry way. No, not in a, it, all the time in the world, you know, they had all the time in the world for me and they had all the space to, you know, answer any question. There was no stupid questions. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a real level of that professionalism was at both places, but there was a, there's something guarded about that. You know, at the end of the day, there's, there's class issues and a whole lot of other things, but there's, there's, it's service. Mm-hmm. One person is serving another. Yep. And that isn't to be taken lightly. And at the same time, I think that the the world is changing a little bit. So, and, and you know, actually, Jack said something really interesting. Jack Al, Al, Algier, or Algier mm-hmm. I don't know how you pronounce Jack's last name, uh, but he's the head farmer yep. of, of, of Stone Barns. And I saw him at one of the, at one of the workshops. And he said, look, you know, 50 years ago, restaurants were places that people went to escape the world. They were working all day. They were stressed out. And they just wanted to go into a down a dark hallway, open up into a beautiful room, look at people they maybe had seen before, maybe not. Almost almost in some, um, what's that, masquerade type right. fashion. Sure, sure. Almost, as you enter in, you kind of can be someone else. It's mm. a fantasy land of sorts. Mm-hmm. But forget about the world outside. And um, today, I believe what diners want is they want that world outside to be totally connected. And, they, and they, there, there might be elements of escape, but, but a lot of it is about connection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it felt like that was echoed in the service element of it, that it was about connection, not about the service being withdrawn and not showing themselves, right? Right. Um, it's not like there's 41 pieces of flair on each server, but... It makes sense. Yeah. So you've done a masterful job at kind of laying out the table of contents to this whole interview yeah, that right. I want to cover, right? Kind so it's cool. like you're not your experience as a farmer going on to like how connected you feel with different chefs, the current projects that you're working on, and yeah. then kind of like um, just more philosophical stuff that I want to get into with you because it's always where our conversations lead. Yeah. So Can I finish one real quick? Yeah, please. I was also really uh, – the second time wasn't as great. At Stone Bar. Yeah. Because – it didn't have the first time at Disneyland. I think feel. I think there's that. Uh-huh. I think there's no doubt about it. Um, the you know the element of just you can't go back to the first time kind exactly. Of thing. But the second thing was it was probably the same week or within a week. It was you know early to mid December, both weeks. Mm-hmm. 
I was somewhat surprised by how much repeats there were. Interesting. So everything was still done perfectly. Uh I think there's that one more component, though, which is evolution. Mm -hmm. And it it made me worry is probably a little bit dramatic, but it brought me to a little bit of that feeling at French Laundry, which is they found the perfect combination. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like going to an MC Hammer concert yep. and, and, and hearing Too Legit to Quit. Right. right? And some, Now, this is where it's a stylistic thing. Some people might love perfection doesn't weaken or get watered down over time. And that consistency is a huge part of cooking and a lot of things. That being said, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan. And for me to go to a modern-day Bob Dylan concert and two minutes into it, the person to the left and the right first realizing that he's actually singing like a Rolling Stone because they've never heard it before, and they're like, this isn't what I came for. To me, it's like, this is his genius. Yeah, This dude has been... He's not singing like a Rolling Stone like it's on the album in 1964. Mm. He's singing the 700th iteration of it. And so to me, evolution is a huge part of it. Totally. And so that was the only thing I would say Mm -hmm. was it felt like there was just a, you know, how is that evolution coming in? And and there's structural reasons and and, and there might be a ton of reasons of why I don't know what was happening. But as a diner, I was, it it wasn't, it was something that I was thinking about. Mm -hmm. Did you go at the same time of year? Exactly. Yeah, it was within 10 days of each other. That might yeah. also be part because sometimes when you're like when you're pushing hard, sometimes when it's time to write the menu for January again, the first thing you'll do is flip back and see what did we do last January and what worked and what I didn't know. work. And yeah, I mean, it, it's true. Like playing the hits works, and yeah, yeah it's it's so. But what, what what came to mind for me when you were talking about the French Laundry experience was the idea that they so much of super high end fine dining was about taking every single choice, every single question, every single worry that the guests could have and to kind of take it away, right? Like you, if um, Anna and I go out and she's having a purse, she gets to the table, there should be a little cushion for her to put her purse down on, right? Ready to go um, before anything happens there. If I have selected or said last time that I ate that I like this type of champagne, two glasses should be ready to go. I shouldn't have to ask for that again. And that got praised so much that I fear that an element of that raw communication of like getting to know someone and like those are the best service experiences I have where I get to know my server a little bit more. I talk with the psalm a little bit. And when that becomes taboo, I worry that that, you know, it's that wabi-sabi element. Like it might be a little bit imperfect, but that's where the beauty is. Yes. And so with French Laundry being as systemized as it is from what I know about it, I understand why it because that allows them consistency. That allows them to yes. cope with things like turnover and, and, and all that stuff. But yeah, I hear you, man. Like, there's a, and also some of it is managing expectation, right? Like, if you think, man, like the amount of meals that I've had where I, I, I know going into it, it's going to be one of the best meals of my life, mm. it's usually not. And that's really right. sad. Right. Which is what's incredible about Stone Barns. I think we both said it, it was meant to be one of the best meals of our mm-hmm. life, and it was. Correct. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, again, this is this is probably more about me than Stone Barns, right? Mm-hmm. It, but mm-hmm. musician who's, you know, scared to, to hit the wrong note is never going to quite have the improvisation right. Right. that Jimi Hendrix or Jerry Garcia had. Totally. And, and I, you know, I love Jerry because he forgets <laughs> the words sometimes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So okay. Tell me a little so, bit more about this. Tell me yeah. a little bit more about the conference and kind of like so, what you what surprised you. Yeah, uh, what surprised me was, um, 
Well, he'd been on the property before, so uh, what surprised me was how easy it was to stay in the city uh, on the Upper West Side with Shabu and uh, and get there every day. 40, right. 40 minutes. Right. Right. Uh, you know, getting out of the city, going north in in the morning, and 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 you know, it was a little bit before the turn off to the GW Bridge on uh, you know the Henry Hudson Parkway, and then uh, it was you know gravy after that. Super funny, easy. funny story about that. Yeah. There's a friend of mine who used to be a sous chef there. When he was a chef de partie, he mm-hmm. would use that drive from Harlem to Stone Barns, mm-hmm. and he would take his prep home with him, <laughs> and he would turn radishes on the way to work oh. every day because <laughs> it was so intense. Great. Anyways, funny story like that that commute. Anyways, that's what that makes it's a great funny. commute, you know. But it's what I love about Seattle, mm-hmm. and didn't mm-hmm. realize that it's there in New York as well. You know, it's we tell ourselves stories. You know, oh, Seattle's great because it's that place where you can, you know, you can get to skiing within forty five minutes from downtown. I mean, it's it's, it's great. Mm-hmm. But New York has it, man. You're on sixteen hundred acre parcel that's that's brilliant and in so many ways and is nature. And then you're in the Upper West Side in forty minutes. So there was that. Um, to me, what I really want to talk about, I think, and what I haven't seen at any other farming conference, I already um, I teased it a little bit before. I gave some foreshadowing mm-hmm. with Kelvin being there. Is right. There's this layer of they're also inviting chefs. And it is a farming conference that is beginning to be the marriage of chefs and farmers. Mm-hmm. And as I'm sure you know, that is a space in which equilibrium squarely falls and and that dialogue is incredible and so i was sitting there surrounded by these chefs kelvin from solari and i don't even know who the other few guys were and we kind of were like you know they were like what you know because they they were at the conference right but they're also eating there that night kind of during the conference and you know they, they were guests it felt like there's a lot of people there that are guests of of stone Stone barns they're putting up a lot of people i mean Mm. the 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 financial structure thankfully goes towards extends to this conference where people um that might otherwise not be able to be there can be there and uh you know these chefs are like what you know what what do we need to know or you know something like that what 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 would you want us to know as chefs and Mm -hmm. it's just like go out in the field talk to the farmers but like go out into the field and conversely invite the farmer into the kitchen mm-hmm. right like break down that wall um tear down that wall if you will if you want sure, me uh, sure classic ring <laughs> yeah. quote my <laughs> fits the theme uh, yeah 27th favorite present yeah <laughs> uh, so yeah that and it's in that space that you know it's where a lot of my thoughts go. Got it. And so here is a conference that I can only imagine over time is going to more and more be that um, meeting ground of farmer and chef. And where better? What? Where else would you imagine it? Right? It's either it equilibrium puts it on, or totally. Yeah, or totally. Stone Barns yeah. does. And, yeah. And um, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. You know. And, and so there I was at a, at one of the workshops, which I think you're looking at the workshop yep. schedule. Yeah. I watched them break down a whole pig. You know, and, sure. I, and it was it was uh, I don't know who was at that one. I don't mm-hmm. think that was the one with Bastion, the sous chef. It was uh, I don't know Bastion, mm-hmm. the sous chef. I think that's the guy that we ended up meeting later. Yeah. That one. You know, it was with uh, Trevor. I think Trevor was there, and uh, definitely the guy who runs their butcher. They're 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 in restaurant butchery which is different than the sales butchery so it was incredible um what else surprised me was you know just just um just how much they're doing Mm -hmm. 
And I'm talking more about the farm than the restaurant, but the restaurant was surprising as well. It's so ambitious. It's so like the the archetype of what you want to see, um, but it's fucking hard, right? Like you have to. It's the it's the machine that they've created, right? Because yeah. the hype of Stone Barns funds the in, like fuels the interest in the farm, and then that gives them the resources to be able to experiment, which then feeds the restaurant to be able to try new things and showcase what they're doing, and then yes. like that's <clears throat> that's, that's like the perpetuates, cycle. and you infuse a pretty decent writer, mm-hmm. so now all of a sudden you get Dan Barber, yeah. Dan Barber mm-hmm. kind of bringing in yep. hyping it hyping that one section more because of the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. What, what would you have liked to have seen more of? I think, like, year after year. I'm always a proponent of. Oh, well, did I just not do it? Um, I mean, it's December. What would I like to see more of? More, you know, I'm seeking out the chefs because that's something I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And there was a growing for flavor. I mean, I don't know. You know, perhaps some of your. Uh, your your listeners or viewers, you know, know this, but but Dan Barber slash Stone Barnes, I, I don't quite know the structure, has started a seed company. Yep. Um, and so there was kind of that growing for flavor bit. So mm-hmm. there's an element of um, chef farmer partnership there, but maybe a little bit more of like almost a mixer. Um, okay. Forced kind of not for, not forced, but opportunities for social events. It was very passive. Whereas at Eco Farm, uh, we talk about that. There's a lot of mixers. You know, mm-hmm. the women in ag mixer, yeah. the uh, people that are descendants of the UC Santa Cruz um, farm program. So so there's that bit. Um, I love the outdoor stuff. You know, get, getting our hands dirty, doing some work. Hopefully some that more can of happen that. in December. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Um, actually. You know, maybe a pre-workshop where you can come and actually work. I mean, the greenhouse there is the best greenhouse I've ever seen. Mm. Right? I mean, it's just it's mm-hmm. a thirty. It's almost an acre. It's a thirty thousand square foot greenhouse. Wow, you know, I mean, it's it's where the you know, where money can really help out. Sure. Right? Uh, but but Jack talks a lot. You know, Jack talks about we got to make this farm work for itself. And 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 I don't quite know. Do we need to do something because no, of that? You're no. Fine. You know, I don't I don't quite know. Um, you know, I love the ideal of got to make the farm work for itself. But when you're on a Rockefeller property and you've got Stone Barns backing you, I, <clears throat> the ideal needs to be there. Um, but when it's not, it can still be floated. And, uh, you know, I, I take it at face value that, that, that Jack's figured out the, 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 the financing of stuff and, and most stuff can pay for itself. You know, sure. there's not much of it that's floated. Um, but. It's something that comes to mind. Totally. Right? I mean, you're the business owner, right? That's naturally yeah. going to come to mind. Yeah, right, right, right. Should we segue into talking a little bit about equilibrium? Because that seems to me like a next natural you're, thing. You're the, like, yeah, tell, me the host, tell me all about attempts, it. Tell me all about it. Yeah, tell me all about it. All about eco. Um, yeah. So again, you know, going going back to the beginning of like how was winter? Like one of the things was there was a fair amount of transition. You know, mm-hmm. um, at this point, there's no one that's worked at. At this point. There will come become another, and in about a month, one of our last year's uh, farm part-time farm workers will come back to do another season. Yep. But at this point, there's no one that works at Equilibrium that was that has worked that even wow. was there three months ago. Yeah. Yep. Uh, is that true? Six months ago, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of turnover. Yeah. And that uh, was challenging, mm-hmm. and potentially. 
don't know if necessary is quite the right word, but it, 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 it was evident. Mm-hmm. It became evident that that was going to happen and did happen. And that's, that's part of that lesson of things I learned the first time. It was yep. a tough uh, pill to swallow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, still, even this past week has been, you know, there's been elements of that that have um, still not evaporated. Mm-hmm. And... I can lose a lot of time looking backwards. Uh, I can lose a lot of time, energy, and and success by looking backwards. Mm. There's a value in looking backwards and realizing mistakes I've made, where things went wrong, um, feelings I had that should have been addressed or dealt with, whereas I thought I might be able to get my way out of them, and then move forward. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a that I think is kind of. A cognitive flexibility that I don't always have. I can ruminate, especially in winter. You know, that's where yeah. the seasonality of it and a wow. being, you know. Mm-hmm. So those last couple weeks of December were really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, January always brings a rebirth to it. Eco Farm in the end of January always does. And then, you know, I will say to anyone in Seattle or the northern climes that is listening or watching. Mm-hmm. Um, if you suffer from sad or seasonal affective disorder mm-hmm. and you want to experience a taste of summer in February, go buy a packet of tomatoes and tomato seeds and plant them huh. because there is a, there is an essence of summer and I can, you know, it's a little dramatic to say I can feel the warmth of the sun on my back, uh-huh. but like I can see when I plant that seed and when I see it emerge, what is happening? Sure. Right? I planted 2000 tomato plants wow. in Seeded 2,000 tomato plants in maybe the size of this. 2,000. And, and yeah, just due to our, our seeding style, we, yeah. we start in open flats, and mm-hmm. then we'll prick them out and mm-hmm. put them in a four-inch pots, right? Mm-hmm. So soon, those 2,000 will be the size of this, you know? Yep. But here I, here we were in two hours, whatever, and, and, and 10 square feet, seeding 2,000 tomato plants. I'm thinking to myself... The amount of hours that we've just unleashed on ourselves by planting these 2,000 tomato plants is not evident in these 10 square no feet. No way. You know? Yeah, and no so um, that, then the moment of fear arises. But, but nonetheless, you know, there we are in kind of a February or early March day. And, um, and, and, and there's, you know, there's, there's, there's an energy there. It mm. connects us to summer in winter. And, like, that is a psychological buffer towards seasonal affective disorder in my mind is plants, you know, in nature. It's so interesting you say that because like talking about, I mean, and this is going to go down another weird rabbit hole of like the amount of time that ever, that so many people spend inside and the fact that the only times that you will technically then see the changing seasons is when you can feel it. Like you can't see it coming from any, from any, from, you know, those 30 days out. Right. That's true. We're we're doing the same thing back here. We're trying to oh, you grow are? a small little garden. Oh nice! I need to get some seeds uh, from you that's because what, yeah, that's what yeah, I wish I'd done. Totally. Was I was like, why didn't I bring seeds? Yeah, no, it's fine. We should um, film some out there. Yeah, that's a good idea. But uh, yeah, I some of them died because we went on. I went on holiday. My girlfriend and I, my fiance yeah. now, and I went on holiday. And uh, yeah, everyone send you. Justin congratulations. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know if to the people, to the people. They do know. The they do know. Network I now? had her on the podcast last week. Oh, you did. Okay, I Great. wanted to chat through a couple chef related dating a chef. Our relationship because I don't share a lot of that stuff on the internet. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, That's a but anyways, 
Boundaries. All of our herbs died. <laughs> and so, really? I mean, yeah. They Starts. just kind of like, sh- yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So they kind of, but they grew really fast. They sprouted up really fast. Yeah. So what we decided was we should just wait until it gets to the, a decent point when we can, you know, we know it's not going to freeze and then yes. plant again. Is that what you'd recommend? Yes. And that has been the incredible thing of this season. You know, mm-hmm. I've been talking to a couple other farmers. We are three to four weeks behind. There's yep. no doubt yep. about it. Um, I, I, I was shocked. I did see, I think, a flowering cherry on my drive here. Okay. Um, I've got one in my house that I use. You know, there's this idea of phenology. Are you familiar with phenology? No. Phenology is the study of nature through the season. So if we had like a phenology notebook, I might write down every day that my uh, flowering cherry first flowers um, every year. So I could look and uh-huh. see how, how the seasons change over time. And so um, just like, when did that bird, when did I first notice that bird? Yep. When did I notice that plant flower? When did I notice um, X, Y, and Z in nature? Um, so it's it's nature over time. Sure. Um, and the, the study of nature over time. And is that done to predict when other certain things are like so if you see that that flowering cherry started then you can look to what happened last year and you're like okay i'm six weeks away from this happening yeah i mean but or are you trying to if monitor it was linear. the changes <laughs> if it yeah was linear, that's my thing right? is but it it's... to monitor the changes that it there's elements of it, it and i think that you know when we build the superest supercomputer of all time and uh, enter all the data and yeah. collect all the data and enter it we'll we'll have the answer right we'll be sure. on top of the pyramid of knowledge yeah yep, um yep. but yeah, you use it as a guide, mm-hmm. right? It's a mm-hmm. uh, um, it's a guide yeah. of sorts, and the way that seeing the weather rolling in is a guide in its own right. But you know, I use skunk cabbage as somewhat of a metric. But mm. with plants, some plants are based on light. Light doesn't change. This is the same amount of light that last March twelfth yep. had. Yep. And the March twelfth before that, and ten thousand March twelfth before. You know, although not mm-hmm. quite. At some point, I think supposedly summer is supposed to be winter yep. because. Yep time it turns out isn't real and this whole leap year thing like it's actually <laughs> it's not it's incredible that it works but i think we're like a second off so eventually oh, it's gonna flip um but there's time there's there's light and then there's there's temperature and so the light based the things that get their cues from light are where they should be because the light hasn't totally changed in fact we've had more light in february sure i bet when we look at analyses there's more lumen hours that have come through it's been very clear and very cold mm-hmm. but temperature stuff which you know a lot of metabolic activities are most light stuff is if it's been if it's contained in a bulb because all that energy is in a bulb or in mm. the tree. If it's growth, it's typically a little bit more you know like green growth is typically more heat related because of all the metabolic activity that's Got required. It. And so like our garlic's really small, mm. um, and I haven't seen any skunk cabbage. Mm-hmm. So I I know I'm on a bit of a tangent that we're sure, behind, sure. but uh, we're behind. Yeah. No, yeah. no, yeah, no tangent. <laughs> I, I mean, think there's there's something tangents else are part of the game. Yeah. I love it. Uh, I per- that that all of that prevented me from asking the typical question I ask, which is for you to give me a state of the union because you basically mm. gave me a few of your thoughts already. Yeah, but I always like to use that question as a way to frame up future questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know because sometimes people are really keen on just kind of like answering exactly what I asked mm. and not kind of elaborating or like saying mm. this is how this ties into this, but. Um, I feel like that's not going to be the problem <laughs> in this interview. Yeah. To to continue on with equilibrium, mm-hmm. in doing my homework on you, I found that you started a farm in 2008 or maybe 2007. You can fact check me here if I'm wrong. And it was in California. 
It was in California. So you're talking about Two Oaks. Yeah, the famed Two Oaks. So tell me a little bit about like why why then why in California mm. and then why the move up to the Pacific Northwest and kind of how does that different? Great. Mm. It's a it's a it's a tale of um, confusion, uh, drugs, <laughs> lust, mm. more love, mm. and. Um, Probably a fair amount of foolishness and, sure. and stupidity and, and and at the end of the day, learning in life. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to, you know, probably right around the end of college. I mean, you want to, you want to know the whole story of farming? Yeah. yeah. I- so, uh, you know, end of college, uh, you're a son of a doctor, right? Yep. So I thought I'd want to be a doctor. You would um, want to be a doctor. Yeah. yeah. Okay. My, my whole, you know, growing up, I always uh, loved science. Mm-hmm. Uh, hard science, uh, lab sciences, organic chemistry, mm-hmm. biology, mm-hmm. physics. And, you know, I mean, at a six-year-old, you don't love that. But like, I remember one of the early computer games we got was this thing called Body Works 5.0. Mm. It was just all the layers of of the body, and you know, I sure. just stared at them. I, I wasn't memorizing stuff, but I love that stuff. Mm. Um, it's really easy as a kid when you love science to say, "Go be a doctor." Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's what we tell people that love science, typically, yep. especially if you grow up in kind of a wealthy suburb of a Midwest city like I did. Yep. Right? So I grew yep. up in Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> doctors, lawyers, right? One of the two kind of kind of thing. And I get it. There's reasons for that. But but I kind of became disenfranchised with it a little bit in college. And I used to love learning. And I went to Northwestern. And there's something about it that just... It turned there's a competitiveness that that entered in, and I guess I didn't rise to the occasion or something, but turned me off to school a little bit, and I was like, this this can't be what it's about. Mm-hmm. I also started smoking pot in mm-hmm. high school. I never did drugs or alcohol or smoked pot or you know did medicine. I guess is what mm-hmm. you call it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so I started doing that, and I just started thinking about you know I grew up in a very you know we talked about the Bexley bubble, which is where I grew up, and and um, you know I didn't know anyone that lived more than three miles away from me, not because we lived in the middle of nowhere, but because that was just like the culture I grew mm. up in. And um, here I was going off to college and it was doing what it should do. It was opening my mind to other stuff. And I started following fish and, um, you know, thinking that, you know, the parking lots of Alpine Valley and Deer Valley and, and or uh, Deer Valley is at the venue, I think, in Indianapolis or wherever, UIC Pavilion, mm. you know, this was where alternative living, living was happening, right? Sure. One, one ganja goo ball at a time. <laughs> And um, I went on a road trip right after junior year of college. Uh, first time kind of out west. Had some really magical moments. Um, fast forward kind of next year. I ended up moving west. Kind of moved to Boulder. Um, started a small garden there, like the size of this rug, you know, mm-hmm. 80 square feet. Um, ended up getting involved in environmental education, moving out to um you know, and the reason I say science because I, I was a biology major, right? So I had all this science, mm-hmm. uh, but at the very end, I didn't want. I, I literally couldn't stand one more equation is life, right? I did. I, I just got so disillusioned with like. So you're telling me all life is is these equations and these like ion gated channels opening up and closing, and it's that predictive, and there's nothing um, <laughs> ephemeral or real, yeah. you know? And, yeah. and 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 so at the very end, I I kind of got a professor to sign off on all this stuff. So I switched from being a neurobiology major in the last moment to an environment. 
an evolutionary biology major. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate enough to be able to take a class down at the Field Museum, in, an ornithology class down at the Field Museum in Chicago. And it turned me on to this idea of natural sciences. This whole other world of science, right? The original science, if you ask me, right? Mm-hmm. On a certain level is, is nature. Sure. Um, and so I ended up getting involved in environmental education. And I worked in an environmental ed school, uh, first in the Bay Area. I worked for a program, part, part of the park, park, park Service, and then out in this town called Sonora, uh, about an hour north of Yosemite in the foothills, mm-hmm. a couple hours east of San Francisco, and a place called Foothill Horizons. And what we did is, you know, what goes on in, in California, probably as well as any state, is sixth graders get a week of outdoor education or science camp or whatever it's called. And um, we were at one of these facilities. So every week we'd get a week, uh, you know, a f- couple hundred sixth graders. They'd come out. They'd stay on site. We took them on hikes. We went to the giant sequoia grove. Um, you know, you want to talk about wonder. Showing someone. I still remember the first time I ever saw a giant sequoia. Yeah. Yep. Have you seen one? Yeah. It's... Eight. You think you understand it like a bit like you sure. stood in the shadows of the Empire State Building or something, mm-hmm. so you've like gotten the sense that like things can be big in this world. Mm-hmm. The giant sequoia, there's something about it that was like it Totally. Because so many it. other things in nature in our lives, whether it's like the dog that you grew up with or your pet goldfish or like the plants that like I grew up with my mom was intensely into like flower planting. And so so much of like that natural life that you experience is like in your lifetime, right? Like yeah. you can fit, you can see yeah. the beginning and the end of that life form. Yeah. But to look at something that is so massive and say that this has been here for more Jesus, century, yeah, yeah. <laughs> centuries. It's yeah. like, whoa, yeah. That that's what struck me. Yeah. So there's the time and then the size. Mm. In my mind, the size was I'd been around big trees. It was on a. I mean, I think I read something that like. There's enough lumber in there. Now, giant sequoia wood is not good for structural lumber, but from a volumetric standpoint, to maybe make 200 five-bedroom houses or something. I mean, it's just like, uh-huh. yeah, so blew me away. Anyway, yeah. we took kids there, and we were teaching them about nature, and a lot of them were from the Central Valley of California. You know, it was all, a lot of them were Stanislaw County, so Modesto Square in the almond or as i believe the farmers down there say almond mm-hmm. um, the, the the nut region mm-hmm. right the nuts are grown in, in stanislaw county um a fair amount of them are um and you know we were bringing these kids out and having a blast you know li- living in community so so coming back to that fish thing a little bit i finally realized gosh that all those visions all those ideals of, of me kind of leaving suburban ohio and and feeling like i was finding something in a fish you know there's actually people living that way, and most of them are involved in outdoor pursuits. Is mm-hmm. what I, is what I determined, mm-hmm. you know. And they're and they're you know you're not just camping in a field to go see a fish show. You're camping because you're backpacking, yep. right? Yep. And and you're talking about these things because you're just deeply invested and tied to nature and a and a life with no watches and a different watch being the sun or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And um, and, and so I loved it, you know, and I fell in love with nature, right? And I took all that love of science and that, that science brain and turned it to um, nature, which is, you know, to me, the essence of being a naturalist, right? And that's where I first learned about phenology, right? Mm-hmm. So here I was living on this 140-acre property year after year, and I did it maybe three, I think three years, right? So you just you began to see the changes of the same piece of land year after year, right? Mm-hmm. And I saw how phenology could be something that's really interesting, Problem was we were serving them absolute shit in the kitchen. 
So it these was kids. these kids, Got you know. It. So here we were. We were bringing these kids out, saying, "Here's the difference between a ponderosa pine and a gray pine," and like, let's go look at the deer and and let's do a pond study and all this awesome stuff about nature. And we were feeding them shit food, huh. and I was like, "Not only are these kids potentially going to take over their parents' farm, or the the children of." Um, you know, immigrants or migrant workers that might, you know, become a foreman or farm lead, you know, in, in those farms and making environmental decisions around farming and food. Um, but, but what a disservice if what they do is they go back home and for the rest of their lives or the rest of that school year, or the rest of schooling for the, until they leave, they say, wasn't that fun when we were out in nature, you know, like that thing over there mm. versus realizing that like nature, we are always in nature and we are always making environmental decisions. And one could argue the largest environmental decisions we make on a day-to-day because of the oper- because we make it you know in the conventional way, whatever three sixty-five times three is you know, ten thousand ninety-five sure, sure. times a year we are choosing what to eat, mm-hmm. and it was missing, right? We were serving hockey pucks, right? What were hockey pucks? It was like pre-frozen chicken fried steak or something, mm-hmm. right? And Monday was always meatballs, and so and. I said, well, I'm an environmental educator. I'm really interested in teaching kids about the environment. We had a garden. You know, I became, began getting a little more interested in it. But like, well, what do I know about the food system huh. was the thought. Yeah. I'd already been introduced to fine dining, right? My, my, my grandparents, uh, growing up my entire life, my grandparents lived on the Upper East Side, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I'd go visit them, in New York, you know, we'd end up going to a nice meal. And, and, I, and I always kind of remembered those, those meals. There was just something quite different, right? I had to be formal. I was a pretty rambunctious kid. So there was a little bit of like the sit still, like, what are you about to do element of it. Um, and so food was already a big part of it. And living in this community at the outdoor school, cooking became a larger part of it. Mm. So I already had those pieces of my life in play. And... Um, I didn't parent until later, probably until grad school, the psych bit. Um, being that I was a pretty rambunctious and almost somewhat aggressive kid, I, I didn't quite understand that WWF wasn't real. Mm-hmm. And so I'd watch episodes and then invite friends over and try the moves out on them. And somehow convince my friends to like, I didn't really know how to do a figure four leg lock, but I'd like convince my friends to like not kick me off of them as I tried yeah. to figure yeah, out yeah, the yeah. figure four leg lock. Huh. Um I kind of have this these memories of this small garden, you know, uh, maybe eight or ten by twenty or thirty feet on the south side of my house, um, and and one of the big things that I was asked to do is go water, and still to this day I love watering. Hmm. I can water a greenhouse. It's so inefficient, but we don't have automatic watering in the greenhouse because for me I would love to water a greenhouse mm-hmm. for twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. There's something about tending. Tending water itself, mm. uh, the arc of, you know, trying to, the, the hose won't reach, but you can like play with the angle and right. the thumb, I remember yeah, my yeah, thumb, yeah. you know, so there's all these memories of water and, and, and when I think about it, I just think of myself as being calm. I can remember times as a kid when I was not calm, mm-hmm. um, though you're a kid, you're just living and acting. Sure. I wasn't personally, I wasn't reflecting on it mm-hmm. that much, mm-hmm. but I really have this strong memory of kind of watering and being calm and so there was a little bit of also you add into that mix the love of food the love of kind of 
di- fine dining because it was, a, you know, I also think like it was one of the ways to connect with people who were otherwise hard to connect with mm-hmm. at times. It was mm-hmm. around the meal. Um, and then you add in this like personal psychology of like, it's also a space where I'm, I'm most calm. Um, and then you add in that a friend of a friend had moved back into town and was starting a farm that I had to drive by twice a day to get to work at the outdoor school. And uh, one thing led to another. And so I started farming with Galen. And to, in two, I still can't remember. I think it was the fall of 2006. Mm-hmm. Then by the summer of 2007, I was working with Galen. I then yeah, That was my last year at the outdoor school. I was 07. I then went on a road trip, went back to Chicago and worked at the Spice House. Have you ever been to the Spice House? In Chicago, no. Uh, there's one in Wauwatosa. Okay. You know where the Usinger's factory is in Milwaukee? No. Uh, there's one in Wauwatosa. There's Spice one. House. Yeah, great spot. You ever been to Market Spice here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's similar. Yeah, it's got great. It. It's a little more Midwest. It's got yeah. a little more Wisconsin mm-hmm. accent. Um, yeah. And they do probably 30% of their sales in like the month between no um, Thanksgiving. and. So they sell cinnamon to housewives. Yeah, and a lot of it. Yeah. And they have like four or five different types of cinnamon. Got it. Um, and, and they've also got a lot of big accounts. I think they sell to all the great bread, Harvest Bread Co's. They maybe do their like herb blend. <clears throat> Super sweet job. And I could talk about that forever. But but so there's an element of it. I, sure. I worked there in college, right? So there I am. You know, I, I graduated a semester or a quarter early. And I, I convinced my parents, you know, I could just stay there if I got a job. So I worked at the Spice House. You know, so there there I am choosing what job to do. And I'm kind of doing something involved with food, you know. Right. And, and so food was a big part of it. And I went back on this road trip anyway. Um turns out summer of 2007 I'd kind of become uh, reacquainted with a uh, high school or college friend of mine who was living in Point Reyes on the coast mm-hmm. in California and she was working on a farm and um, I fell in love with her and then uh, decided to go visit her on a road trip and um, fell in love with her even more and after some uh, conversations we decided that we would end up trying to start a farm and so by December of or by November of 2008 we did we did the growing season in I worked with Galen and on the farm uh, with with Peter Martinelli and Bolinas uh, where she was working and we would see each other kind of you know I'd go and work on the farm with her and then go back and see Galen and she'd come visit me right. and we got our own farm and so I think that's where you kind of found me because i i'm surprised you found yep. me I, i've, I've yep. scrubbed the internet now i'm not on the internet <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. But, but i am mm-hmm. um, do you see the picture of me with the hawk no that's one of the only images I okay. think of me on the internet. from that era that's of me at the outdoor school you know okay. with the hawk on my yeah, arm yeah yeah um and so we started two oaks and um i thought i was farming with galen and it wasn't until i started my own farm that i realized just how little farming i was actually mm-hmm. doing you know mm-hmm. how much galen was was doing when i would go home or before I got there, that mm-hmm. was really making the farm run. And there's nothing quite like starting, you know, you can work on all the farms you want when you actually, when, and it was Lindsay and I, and we would have work parties and stuff, but Lindsay and I basically grew an acre and a, acre, acre and a half, um, no tractor, um, by ourselves. And who were you selling to? Who were the? Yeah, that's was a the good market? question. It was it was a it was a. Uh, I, we didn't think that far ahead. Okay. You know we okay. we 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 had worked on farms and we wanted to start a farm. Interesting. You know, and so we we did start uh, work. We you know, one of the jokes I've had a few times in life, 
was uh, putting the farmer back in farmer's market. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's some farmer market, farmer's markets out there that have gotten away from that. They're doing a lot of prepared food. Yep. And um, we were at one of those. So we, we kind of were the organic farmer. We weren't certified, but we were the ones doing, um, you know, this. What I would say is there's this style of farming, which is small scale, hum small scale organic agriculture is kind of the terms. But it's it's these tools and techniques that are, that are, you know, it's diverse. It's diversified vegetable farming, mm -hmm. right? But a small-scale diversified vegetable farming. That's different than large-scale diversified vegetable farming, which is different than large-scale monoculture. Sure. Um, and so we did that. It turns out that about half of what we grew, um, if you ever go to Yosemite, you ever been to Yosemite? Yep, twice. Did you drive from San Francisco? Mm-hmm. So you drove right past the farm. There's a small ah. town. You go up this, you go, you're kind of driving across Central Valley, then you're kind of... <laughs> In the beginning of the foothills where there's basically just these oak trees dotting this otherwise cow-ridden landscape. And there's a point where you cross over Don Pedro Reservoir and you go up a really steep grade. Mm -hmm. And it's right at a – you go over a reservoir. Right at the top of that reservoir is a town called Big Oak Flat. And that's where we were farming. And then you go through Groveland. And anyway, right before you get to what's called the Big Oak Flat entrance to Yosemite, which is on Highway 120. So anyone going from San Francisco would go this route. Um there's a turnoff like 800 yards before the entrance called Evergreen Road, and it takes you out to Hetch Hetchy Dam, which is a beautiful dam. You know, people claim it's every bit as beautiful as Yosemite Valley, and unfortunately, it's just under like 400 feet of water wow. or 800 feet of water because it's the water for San Francisco. And on that road, on Evergreen Road, is Evergreen Lodge, and they are a you know middle of nowhere. If you don't want to stay in Yosemite or can't. You can stay at the Evergreen Lodge. Hmm. And we sold half of our produce to them. And they used most of it for family meal. They had a huge budget, you know, because you, you've got a captive audience. Mm -hmm. And what I learned was I was able to, because I was comfortable with chefs at that point, um, I basically got the guy to give me a Cisco sheet. He also didn't care, right? Chefs don't really huh. care. So he gave me a Cisco sheet mm. um, so I could see what, what they were paying. It was yeah. like, yeah, there's no way I'm going to be able to match the 99 cents a pound for onions <laughs> yep. and you're paying 450 a bunch for beets mm -hmm. when like the standard was 325 we can right. get into the whole pricing of how these small you know farms figure out the pricing of stuff mm -hmm. and i think there's a ton to talk about there but bottom line was i i was able to we were able Lindsay and i were able to sell uh you know a fair amount of stuff to to evergreen lodge mm. and um you know, the finances didn't work out in the first year as, as, as little they should. And mm -hmm. we were younger, and, and I think it was as much about the education, proving something to ourselves, mm -hmm. um, being in nature. You know, I mean, it was it was idyllic in a lot of ways and tough in a lot of other ways, mm -hmm. you know. I wanted to chat through that a little bit yeah. with how you react to failures mm. as far as, like, whether it's through doubt or... Um, something that goes wrong that was your own doing versus something that you deal with that not a lot of other people deal with, which is sometimes nature's doing, right. uh, screwing something up or making something not go according to plan. What, where does your head go? Like what are some kind of practices that you use when things don't go right? Yeah. Well, I think I've got control issues and I'm controlling, but I'm not type a, sure. If that kind of works, mm -hmm. so I can be like pretty passive and like let things come to me, but mm -hmm. then I still at times want to control them. So, but, but nonetheless, there's this element that, so I'm not going to completely absolve elements of control within me, but there's also, I can also, when it comes to nature, I think more than humans, I can accept nature changing my plans. 
like I kind of have that res- like ultimate respect for nature, sure. and so it's like that's yeah the way you know you can't fight nature mm-hmm. right and, and it's never usually out of malicious intent right like nature is gonna do what it's gonna it's, do as i you know as i like say it's the nature of nature uh-huh. you know uh-huh. i mean that's just what happens yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah, there's no questioning it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. whether it's malicious intent or not. And even with humans, whether it's malicious intent, there still is that element of, uh, why did that, what were they thinking? Mm-hmm. Or like, did I, you know, did I mess up with nature? It's like, no, that's the nature of nature, you know? And, 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 and it's fun because then you can learn a bit about nature. You can learn about wireworms when the wireworms take out a crop. Um, but you know, there's a buffer in diversified vegetable farming so that like, yeah, chard might be good and onions might suck, but like this idea of like crop failure and, um, it's just, it's not as, you know, you've diversified, you've diversified risk. Mm -hmm. Um, so part of it is diversification of risk in which case failure doesn't impact you as much. Right. Okay. Um, the eggs in one basket versus the eggs in many baskets. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's that element of it. Um, or the eggs in one basket versus like eggs and mushrooms and carrots and a pound of meat in one basket right mm-hmm. i mean it's, if the eggs crack like yeah, you still yeah, have yeah. things to cook with sure. okay i am a pretty big critic you know i've definitely like internalized the um criticism of my elder generations mm-hmm. internally um and that is foisted upon myself and others and um, I try and observe that. Um, my initial reaction is typically negative and an overreaction. It's how my is my initial thought. And if I can get past that initial thought, which takes some self awareness and time and cognitive flexibility, I can enter into a more productive, balanced, rational even. Um, assessment um, so to answer the question how do I deal with failure um, is initially not well mm-hmm. and then I grow from it right and then I, I incorporate it I don't think it's in I think it might be passive mm. I think I just incorporate the experience versus totally reflect on it and like make that you know like the Cue the drum music. Mm. Cue the music, mm-hmm. and the, the he rises up mm-hmm. from the ashes. Right, I'm not. I'm not like a phoenix in that right. regard. Right. Um, I'm, and um, you know, and, and so, and and then I think that you know this is where kind of some of that psych stuff ties in. Totally, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to cover it because so many people are listening, maybe struggling with that themselves. Right, yeah. like chefs are notoriously harsh critics on themselves. Yeah, and it's no secret that a lot of chefs will sometimes have things like anger issues or impatience with um things like failures and maybe if it's not someone that's listening but someone that they work with that um they're just so like why are they reacting in this way right. but it seems like it's uh it's a natural thing that you because you are ambitious enough to do the things that you're doing that kind of like leads it that you have to have both Right. So are there any resources or any practices that you've found, like any maybe like a mental cue that you'll tell mm-hmm. yourself mm-hmm. that if someone else is dealing with something similar that you would advise them to do based on your 
So, I mean, a couple things. One, yes, get out in nature. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, feel small, mm. right? Because what failure is, is some is you are the center of the universe and something wrong has occurred, <laughs> right? There's an underlying egotistical element to failure. Right. Um, which is a weird thing to say, which, it, you know, so if you're listening or watching, let's yeah. stick with it. Cause I think we're going to explore it a little bit more. I'm not saying you're an ego maniac, but, but it starts there. Mm. So if you can feel small, it can, it's a psychological buffer. So mm. cognitive flexibility is one thing. Sometimes I like to think to myself, well, there's a hundred, there's 250 million people in China that don't care about this. <laughs> right. So like, and it, it doesn't work, but I've always like found me and it used to be 50 million people. I, yeah. There's 50 million people in China. You know, now it's, you know, there's 500 million people in China that like just don't care. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, you know, you, and you know, I don't love this idea of first world problems. Like I get it, but it's like, what do you want me to do? Have third world problems? You want me to like be be pooping in the corner of my and, and like maybe cooking with it? Like mm. I live in the first. I, it's not to denigrate that there is a third world and not even try and understand that third world. But I'm also not going to weaken the experience of myself or people around me by just saying it's first world problems. Though I think in a sense that is what there's 500 million people in China don't care is effectively right. saying. Right. Right. Um, but to go an element, a, a level deeper, um, I believe that um, the recognition, that, you know, it's the take a deep breath. And, the, and, and that's an idea that doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. I, I can spin my, I can get myself spun up, mm-hmm. right? I can ruminate. I can have a feedback loop that only grows it, right? So feel small, kind of will, will bleed that out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, time, right? Recognize that your first reaction is not your only reaction. Yeah. You're limiting yourself. Now, the one thing I will say about farming, or I don't know if we're talking about farming anymore. We are. Yeah. We are. We are. Or we, we, are. Not? we are. Oh, we are? I okay. think we are. <laughs> I think we're talking about life as well. Sure, a bit, sure. Right? So, is, is you know, sometimes, and I wonder about this about the kitchen, is the, the, the length of the arc. So, farming is somewhat of a long arc. Mm-hmm. So, I can, I, have a, I can think about, you know, I came in and the mole ate my row of onions mm-hmm. beets mm-hmm. nothing needs to happen in the next five minutes right there's that arc that i get uh-huh. and i wonder about the pressures of the kitchen totally if there's something about that arc is a small arc it mm. gets shrunk down that, that there's that immediacy mm-hmm. right um so I wonder if I'm afforded something a little different through life and farming that, mm-hmm. that doesn't have that pressure of immediacy. It might be the reason why you became a farmer and not a chef. Perhaps. Right? Yeah. Like I like slow things. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk fast. I move fast. I like that which is slow. Right. Right. And being able to observe and being able to take your time and your reactions. Totally. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, cognitive flexibility is such a huge element of it. And um, Do you meditate? I don't. Mm. I, I don't in a spoken right you know in a in a frame i i would i would argue I mean, you know mm-hmm. not to denounce or claim that i know what even meditation is yeah. but i would argue that there are moments of silence mm-hmm. um uh that uh, and and um i it takes a lot for me to to create moments of thoughtlessness. Mm-hmm. It seems like watering might do, like the 20 minutes of, yeah. you know, yeah. like that might be a very meditative practice. Yeah. And my property, you know, mm-hmm. going down to the gazebo in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but being in nature, um, 
being around the farm around sunset when the light is low and you mm. can't do anything else and the day is over. You know, I always say kind of a farmer either needs to be up. And this whole trope of like, you know, so, so what we're trying to do at Equilibrium is also like deconstruct farming a little mm-hmm. bit, right? And deconstruct mm-hmm. these concepts of it, right? So we got to move past like guy in overalls, um, animals, long rows of corn, right? Um, but I will say that it's, you know, it is long hours. It's hard work. Things just, farm time is different. You can't punch out at five because if the water's, got to be on overnight and a pipe just burst you got to deal with it mm-hmm. or it's not gonna occur right so it's a little bit more about projects than time mm-hmm. um and so farm time is just a different arc but um where's it going with that about deconstructing farming oh i think a farmer either needs to be up at dawn or there till dusk and i'm pretty much a classic night owl so I'm a little <laughs> bit more the 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 second the one. latter yeah. yeah and so i imagine maybe some farmers have it if they're up before dawn and kind of get to the farm and have that moment but but there's something really nice about dusk on the farm sure um which is really slow mm. um but i'm really kind of my mind is in the back of my mind i'm saying words i'm thinking about what i'm saying but i'm also still thinking this idea of failure so i might have to come back to it some point. i know That's if fine. you might want to get on to another i well maybe we should swap hats on you for a second because there's the farmer hat and then there's the you know the entrepreneur hat the business person hat yeah so in talking about kind of starting equilibrium and taking some of these uh, past experiences and using that as reference points to what you're going to build. I'd be curious to hear a little bit about how you structured the business model at equilibrium, because it's the first one where I've seen people working with companies like Microsoft or, you know, like giving a block of land to someone like homegrown, right. right? Or working with a winery across the street to do dinners with them or doing chef focused dinners on your land. Right. Uh, the closest person that comes to mind is Dan Barber doing something like that. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And so where does that structure, where does your mindset come from with, with things like that? I think I only talked about the hardship and love and lust part of it. I don't think I talked mm. about the drugs part yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But I spent a fair amount of my time at the outdoor school or on the farm, you know, so the outdoor school is 140 acres. So first thing was when I lived in San Francisco doing outdoor ed, I lived in the Golden Gate National Recreation Area just north of the, um, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, the first exit on Alexander Avenue, you go through a tunnel, and I was living in some housing there. And I like to think of my backyard as 77,000 acres because that was the size. Wow. Okay. So it wasn't that big, and, and but but and the, and, the, and the city was 10, 10 minutes, you know, south. Mm-hmm. Then I moved to Sonora. I'm living on this 140-acre property. Then I moved, Lindsay and I moved to Two Oaks Farm. We're on an 800-acre property, right? So here it was kind of like some weird isolation, independence, really wanting to be in nature, always loving the city. Mm-hmm. You know, there. I mean, we could talk a ton about what it used to be like going back to New York City and just being like, oh, my God, I can't believe people live like this. And going back to New York City and being like, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Right? All that stuff. So this tension of city and middle of nowhere has sure. always been within me. Sure. Um, but I used to smoke a ton of pot. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that was its own expression of isolation and independence, which I think just to kind of I'm going to get to your answer. Yeah, but like, no, I think that one thing, you know, so I used to smoke a ton of pot. And basically, once I started Equilibrium, a lot of there was a confluence of a lot of things, but but I haven't really effectively since I started Equilibrium, and I don't think I could have done what we're doing mm-hmm. if I if I was still was. And I think that there, but there was an emotional shift. 
Yes. Part of after I had that shift and, and I don't even know what, I think it was passive as well. I don't think there was this active moment. I was like, now I'm a new person. Mm-hmm. Something, something happened, not nothing traumatic or, but something shifted. Um, and I was aware of it and something like smoking pot didn't make as much sense. Something like starting a company made a lot more sense. And I don't know if it had been a year before, if I would have taken these things on, mm-hmm. they all tied in. So to me, there's also the element of like, pay attention to the emotional side, right? Like if we are not attending to our emotional center and I think for chefs and maybe farmers, it's very physical and it's very cognitive. Um, but the emotional strand is, is we, you know, a lot of people act on emotions without being able to process them. And it's, do, people should, I don't know how to do it. Cause I wasn't like this for the first 25 years. I acted on emotion, but I didn't really understand my emotional being. Mm-hmm. Um, once one dives into that and it's, it doesn't have to be like dramatic necessarily, but just being aware of it talking about emotions and being open to talking about emotions allows one to be be emotionally aware um it it it'll it is a buffer in its own right so um that being said um part of the smoking pot in the middle of nowhere was and working in the fields was spending days and days thinking about all these ways that farms could be involved in society right and um and kind of watching you know in the 2000s you know to go back a little bit you know i jump all over the place you know, I was a huge, you know, I can remember nights in 98, 97, you know, I remember in 2001, I did an Iron Chef competition. You know, I was really? early, I mean, I was an on Iron Chef, uh, like it. at college, yep, at yep, school, yep, yep. we had this co-op and we wanted to do this video. And so we did this Iron Chef type thing. Mm. I was a huge fan of early Food Network. Yeah. Right. I yep. wanted to watch a lot of Iron Chef and, and Jamie Oliver. Yep. Um, and and Molto Mario, and um, I was never a big Everell guy, but you know, so there's 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 all there's all those elements, and so I I, I thought a lot about food, right? I, I, I'm upset, you know. I guess I've got in my ability to ruminate, I can ruminate on anything, right? So I can ruminate on how do farms reach in a society, and like everyone is eating, everyone is eating all the time. It's essential, and everyone is so disconnected. Um, like where do you think some of your food is like where do you think some of this stuff's coming from right yeah like exactly yeah. and and you know I guess one other thing is like I did once take an intro to Buddhism class in college mm. and one of the things it's like loving mother kindness or something like this where you like you it was this it was this we just did it it was like, most of it was an academic approach to Buddhism but it was like we just kind of like thank the couch and then thank person that made the fabric Mm -hmm. and then well then thank the person that moved the couch here Mm -hmm. and then thank the company that purchased the couch to bring it here then thank the person the customer service department and so i think that that's a buffer as well when you realize that it's not you Mm -hmm. like you might be the end of a long process but you're still just part of a process and again going back to the egotistical thing you always i mean i get it like the person that did the customer service like didn't really have an impact if the couch is shitty or if you like wake up uh, after taking a nap and you like peed on the couch, mm-hmm. like there's mm-hmm. an embarrassment that sets in that has nothing to do, but still unless if you can zoom out and kind of sure. see that chain, sure. it's part of it. So, um, you know, I just think about all of these elements of food and 
I remember in 2007, 2000, and I think back in those days, I had a lot of ideas. My friends were like, sure, sure, you know, like whatever. Uh, how are you going to do that? Or, okay. And we were living three, four hours away, but I still remember thinking, man, like why does Google not have a farm on the campus? Here's Google that has 80 acres, 60 acres, whatever. The farm is the most low risk. If I went in there and pitched a, on a $500,000 farm concept, first thing they'd do is tell me, not that I would go talk to the CEO, first thing they'd tell me is, but let's imagine I was talking to the CEO. First thing they'd do is ask me if I left two zeros off, right? Because a $500,000 investment to these guys is nothing. They're sure. deciding whether to buy $500 million mm-hmm. companies investments. So to me, the risk is so low for a company like that. Mm-hmm. Also, it's a farm. If you want to build your next building there, because you're expanding, give me two weeks in a backhoe, and the, you'll never know, you know, and in two weeks and one day, the 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 grading company can come with their bulldozers, and you'll never know a farm was there. So there's, like, no risk to me, and the payoff is so high that you would have this employee engagement. There were all these employees. You heard these stories. You could bring your laundry in, bring your dog in, right? The whole point of these companies was to keep you on site, mm. and... People like to farm. And if 1% of Googleites like to farm, well, then they need to, have, that's 500 people or 1,000 people. They need to have a community farm there. And so I, you know, I had all these thoughts and they were thoughts. And, you know, you fuel it by some weed and time and nothing else. And, mm. you know, I had a lot of them, you know, and I just kept thinking and thinking and thinking. And you flash forward to kind of this opportunity that presented itself where Colin McCrate from, you know, Selfco, Seattle Urban Farm Company, had this farm, and I knew he kind of wanted to maybe, fa- that's not their main business model, it's not their core competency, so to speak, and so I knew there's an opportunity maybe to take over that satellite farm of theirs, so, um, and so I pitched him on this idea, and one of the main things that interested me was this this relationship they already had with Homegrown, right? So I didn't create that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I've thought about this stuff, mm-hmm. but Colin and Selfco first pioneered that, that concept. I think there's a couple other restaurants that did it. Um, but it was because of that that I really was intrigued. Right? I wanted to farm and all this other stuff, but like here was Colin kind of laying the groundwork for it. And um, so that's when I took over the farm. And to me, well, the reason it resonates is because it's a little, you know, I believe that for somewhere between three and 5,000 years, Farmers have been doing the same thing, which is they think all winter about what the market might want and they grow food and they bring it to market and they pray that that's what people wanted that day. Sure. And that's a lot of risk on the farmer. And um, there's ways to, you know, we might have like a digital chalkboard today. I might send out a fresh sheet, but it's still, here's what I have. Do you want it? Mm-hmm. Is implicit in it. And something like the homegrown contract. And partnership, really. It's not the contract. Something like the Homegrown Partnership does a couple things. First of all, I'm only growing what they want, so it's custom growing. Second of all, 100% of what I grow is for them. So, And let's just take another restaurant. Homegrown doesn't need it, but let's take Barking Frog, which I kind of have developed what I thought was a homegrown contract, and I tried to pitch them on the homegrown contract. And uh, then I learned that actually what needs to happen is there needs to be a Barking Frog contract. Right? You can not You can take elements of it, but you can't just duplicate it quite yet. Um, and... You know, if Barking Frog buys two beds of tomatoes and they in late June, early July want 40 pounds of green tomatoes because what they really want to do is make some sort of green tomato jam or blah, blah, blah. If I was a farmer doing that old model of just 
bringing to market what I wanted, there's no way in hell I would do bring green tomatoes, right? I'm trying to get my red tomatoes to market the f- fastest as possible. Some of that's convention, right? I mean, so and I think I'd love to spend some time with you talking about what is food, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Because a red tomato isn't the only part of the tomato that's food, right? But it's barking frogs bad. Mm. If they want, as long I'll I'll inform them. It's informed consent. I'm informing you that if you take these green tomatoes, it's going to delay your red tomatoes. You want it? Great. Mm. There's nothing I'd rather do than pull the forty pounds of green tomatoes for you, and that's really cool because it. It, it 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 gets to the heart of where and I don't you know I don't know if I have the verbiage for this before stuff going homegrown I probably did because I was thinking about Google and the farm there you know 10 or 12 years ago meanwhile in the in the 10 or 12 years I keep looking typing into Google Google farm and the only thing that ever comes up is the server farms and you know wherever <laughs> right so they still they've got some elements of it but not quite to where it's sure. at and I don't want to pretend like I grow farm at Google or at Microsoft. It's been no, very hard no. to get into those companies, but my goal is to get there. Right. And I think that's like why I was initially so attracted to you guys because it, the, the the chef restaurant space got to a certain level of that as well where, you know, it's that the concept of a bistro that is open six days a week and they open for service at 530 and... They might have like a website where you can check out their menu, right? But it's kind of like the doors open then, and you open, you, they open, and you hope people show up, right? Not all that different from sending out a fresh sheet and saying, right? I I hope you buy it, right? And so when I started to hear about all these chefs that were doing tasting menu dinners with concepts that included things like tickets, that like really struck me and like whoa. You can operate a. You can do the same thing. Like the product doesn't necessarily change. Right. It's how it's presented to the consumer. Right. That's a little bit more business savvy, where you're making sure that you don't have all these conventional worries that go along with. You know what I mean? Like overheads. Yeah, yeah. Like whatever percentage homegrown is of your business, that helps. So like it doesn't necessarily have to be all the, the end all be all of farming, but it helps you do what you do. You know what I mean? It, it brings you a little bit of peace of mind. Like well. Uh, Absolutely. I would also say that when we look at the homegrown, you know, when we look at the contract in its totality, a couple things. It's a best faith effort. They trust me that and, 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 and it's something I take seriously because they put that trust in me. We are growing and trying to get them the most product as possible. Mm. But our contract is not tied to volume. Right? And there's only maybe 50% of the contract is actually equated to the food I bring right the product i bring them which is strikes at the core of i'd say a thesis i don't know if i've turned my theses into business models this is where i might fail as a business owner Mm -hmm. in that i'm not fully svelte in my business model though i can think about speak about it better today than i could a year ago Um, but the thesis is that there's a very narrow range on products and services are unlimited right Right. And when I can layer services on to my product, I can all of a sudden begin to change the the economics of farming, which heretofore has been a grind. Now, I'm not talking about corporate farming and, and that whole world. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about small-scale organic farming, the farms that 
have 50,000 followers shockingly you know there's dozens of farms that have 50,000 more followers on Instagram right there there's a cachet there we know there is so that's another thesis where there's interest business opportunities mm. follow and we know there's interest in local food we know there's interest in all of this in in this in this can feeling connected in in this in this digital world which I know you're more of a part of, I think, than I am. Mm -hmm. I believe that the more we go into the digital world, which seems like a one-way route for mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. there's always going to be this atavistic desire to remain connected and mm -hmm. remain connected to fundamental things like nature, people, food. And I think we see that. I think we see those yearnings. And, and it's shifted what agritourism looks like. Um, but I know that there's a narrow range in product. Someone might pay... $2 a pound for tomato. Some might pay 6 If I'm really lucky, someone might pay 8 No one's going to pay $30 a pound, mm -hmm. right? You've heard me probably say it before. We're not like the wine industry. Mm -hmm. There's a $10 bottle of wine out there, and there's a $100 bottle of wine out there, and I do not believe there's a 10x difference in production costs. Sure. How does someone validate? Validate's not the right word. How does someone convince someone to buy a $100 bottle of wine? Mm -hmm. Branding, all this other stuff. I will guarantee you if you come upon me or any of your listeners at some point and I'm talking to you about the notes of cherries and um, wheatgrass in my tomatoes, I'm selling a $30 tomato, right? Some of right. that. Right? right now we just sell a tomato mm -hmm. and we look at it again as this commodity. Going back a little bit to Stone Barns in that there's this individual element mm -hmm. of, of a vegetable that's different than the, than the vegetable next to it on the plant. Um, you know, part of that is how wine does that and coffee we're seeing it mm -hmm. with, right? Mm -hmm. We just talk about the flavor of a tomato. Yep. We might talk about acid or sweetness or juiciness mm -hmm. or meatiness, but that's not how we talk about coffee. And, you know, we're talking, you know, it's interesting the verbiage that's used, right? We're beginning, you talk about the notes of something. I haven't quite seen the notes of X in a vegetable or fruit necessarily. Would you be the person to pioneer something? Because like, I don't that's think so. No, I think that's, it's so. <laughs> I I made a, a fun little movie about this guy who made cider in Norway, and he wanted to be in the same league. When you talk about champagne, yeah, you think about a very specific region with a very specific product and a very specific caliber of product. Mm. He wanted Hadanger cider, which is a very specific region in Norway that grows and produces cider, to have the same thing. And his mission is to do that with yeah. cider. So you yeah. he, you can have a bottle of cider, you can have a bottle of Hedunger. Yeah, right. So part of it is that hustle of getting the name out there and like partnering with the right people who will put you on and say the right things about you. And yeah. it doesn't necessarily seem like your personality necessarily. And No, I don't think so. So... But I, I understand it. Yeah, and that's it's a the concept that I want Totally, to totally. Present. And that's the beauty of, you know, like some, a show like this because there's someone who's going to listen and going to be like, go I'm going to be that person yeah. and I'm going to do that for farmers. Yeah. Right? So fascinating. Totally, yeah. totally fascinating. I, yeah. Do you want me to keep talking about it? Or do you yeah, want to please. Yeah. Like yeah. more, yeah, like more along the lines of kind of like how you're thinking about future partnerships or... Yeah. Um, maybe we can go into under the walnuts next. Yeah, we can. I, so I'm, I'm just kind of getting into a little bit of the thesis of this. So this idea of the product, right? So, mm. and at the end of the day, we got a little bit because we are tied. And this is the interesting thing where like wine, people don't want, you know, someone that wants to buy a $10 bottle is even thinking about buying a $100 bottle of wine, probably thinks to themselves, I can't be the type of person to buy a $2 bottle of wine, mm -hmm. right? 
But somehow with food, it's a little different. That 50 cent tomato is, and so I want to talk a bit about, or just think out there in general, mm. the disconnect around food a little bit. And you know mm. what? I think it happens with consumers. I think it happens with chefs a little bit. It's changing, right? Um, I think there's times in a stock. Is a stock really going to be different whether you buy commodity onions or $3 pound spring onions for me? Probably not that much. Mm -hmm. It gets blended in quite a bit. Um, but to me, there, since there's that narrow range, right? Let's just go with that thesis for a minute. The way to make money is by layering on those services. Mm -hmm. And so what is the, what are the services? So first of all, the other thing is it's a competitive marketplace out there for farms, small farms. Yes, you can get in at farmer's markets and do another CSA. And at the end of the day, I say, you know, those other farms are going to be my competitors when 95% of people are eating that way. Mm -hmm. Right now, only whatever, 3 4% are eating that way. Mm -hmm. And therefore, like, we need the rising tide approach. Sure. Right? And for people listening, don't not to get it twisted, you guys do farmer's markets. You do a CSA, right? We do. We do. Mm -hmm. um, that is even shifting. Sure. Farmer's market, yes. CSA. So let's imagine we have 50 CSA shares. I would rather go to talking about services, right? Let's say we have, let's say I have two boxes, okay? I fill them both of the exact same produce. I fill them with 30 pounds of, $30 of produce. Okay, I walk out the door. Box one is your traditional CSA. I'm trying to sell to you, our neighbors, coffee shop. Uh, I put it in the community board of the coffee shop, right? Mm -hmm. Consumers, right? Um, for lack of a better term, you know, I, somehow I keep coming up with this term mom and pops, but that's mm -hmm. not it, but just mm -hmm. the, the people, yep. right? I will charge them $30 for that box because there's $30 of produce in there. Um that other box, I now go to a company and say, I want you to buy this box for your employees as part of your employee wellness. I might charge $40 for that box. Right. I have $30 of produce that I know I can charge because it, that's the what's going on. But now I've I, – that because that's the product. The product costs $30, right? Because price is cost plus value. Mm -hmm. The cost of it is $30, right? The cost of that's $30. Mm -hmm. But – there's more value. Why? Because what's going on is you're making a commitment to your employee that uh, through an employee wellness package that you don't just pay for health care. You pay for preventative care through healthy food. Um, you can use it as marketing material for recruitment. Um, you can use it as, as, as basically community outreach to show what kind of company you are and what your values are. Mm -hmm. Those are all contained in you purchasing sure. this box for me. Sure. And so for me as a farmer... If I can charge $40 for what I could charge 30 there, mm. you know, it's, again, that's because I layered a service on it. Yeah. So um, to me, the the early entry of businesses are obviously businesses that are based around food because they need the product. Mm -hmm. So homegrown, they need the product. But we do farm days out there, right? So So there might be 12 to 15 days a year where for four hours of the day, Homegrown effectively has access to our, and, and we structure it and schedule it. They have access to our field and they come out. And the goal for Homegrown, because this is how they are as a company, is that every single employee will come out to the farm over the course of a year. And we do an hour of sustainable ag education, two hours of work in the field on their plot, which hopefully, you know, they're picking tomatoes that they then serve the next day. And then an hour where we get our culinary team to provide a light lunch and it's a little bit more of that community aspect. Mm -hmm. 
And so to me, those elements are really the essence of, of what we do. Because at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're bringing people closer to their food. And we're making food not just something that comes in the back door in a wax box when the truck engine rumbles. I think about that sometimes because you ride that line, right? Where I think about the person who... Because that's something that a lot of chefs struggle with too, right? Where you know you're buying $30 worth of ingredients, but you need to charge $120 for that tasting menu of serving those ingredients because the product is the food, but then the, because that's what sticks in people's mind as I'm buying dinner. Right. But in order to cover your costs, you need to charge $120 for your tasting menu. Mm-hmm. And I was chatting with a friend of mine about this when I first moved to Seattle as far as like, why is there no $200 tasting menu in Seattle? And what she told me is the fact that Seattle people are very savvy and they're well read and they know that a bunch of kale costs two dollars and fifty cents so why is your salad seventeen dollars on your menu right and back to my original point of you have to kind of ride that line of like wanting people to know about food and be interested in food enough so that they're interested in your product but also there's like this uh beauty of not naivete but like not to know how much the tomato costs, but to see that by me bringing you this tomato to your office in this way, that's what I want you to think about, not necessarily right. the fact that the tomato costs $2. Right. Um, and the connection. You're paying for that totally, connection. Totally. Totally. This is about values. Yep. yep. Right? I'll pay. There's nothing I dislike more than than paying a lot for bad food, mm-hmm. but there's very few things I like as much as paying a lot for great food right. good experiences right. and, you know and, and that's how i choose to spend my time you know mm-hmm. some people choose to travel yeah you know and um that's a, just a value mm-hmm. right um you can experience what you're experiencing mean, to a degree i mean i've always had this it's another thing i've always thought about is like who knows the world more the the person that travels endlessly throughout time or the person that watches the same patch of ground for mm-hmm. years right mm-hmm. and the other day it's a different knowledge but if one's thinking about knowledge you know it it can be found, but mm-hmm. traveling is a value. Um, you know, buying this mic versus a different yep. mic yep. is a value. People will spend money on whatever they want to spend money on. And there's a whole group of people that want to spend it on food. I think, you know, we're also kind of hovering around the outsides of like the price of food and the cost of food and access to food, um, which, you know, has been a big critique of kind of this part of the food system Mm -hmm. right and i don't want to shy away from that at all i'll argue for a long time that no one pays the true cost of food Mm -hmm. and i've always said give small farmers 50 billion dollars in subsidies we'll find a way to get the cost down yeah you know so it's not a level playing field you know sure i mean i don't bastardize anything and this might get us onto a conversation about nutrition but Mm -hmm. i I do not believe there's such thing as bad food Mm -hmm. if i could i would give every starving child in in any part of the world a big mac Mm mm-hmm I'll eat McDonald's, mm-hmm. but it's about the balance of it and, and your approach to food. I, I don't believe that a Big Mac is bad. Right. It's not. Interesting. You know, it's calories yep. and that's valuable. Um, but um, there's a reason it can be done at one ninety nine or whatever the price mm-hmm. of a Big Mac mm-hmm. is. And there's so many elements of, of markets and systems that involve, you know, why... I just don't buy that organic food is 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 only for and, and this style of food is only for the wealthy. Um, 
but farmers need to farmers need to make money too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's a grind for farmers to make money, and this is a way that maybe, be, you know, I, and I think about this a lot. Is kind of I've been thinking a lot about this idea of I don't know what the term is, but like Tom's the shoe company, mm-hmm. you know them? Mm-hmm. They've got this model I think where it's like one to one. Yeah, like you buy a pair of shoes. Sure. What's that called? Is sure, that a, uh, I'm sure there is in like the startup VC world. Yeah, yeah, given give one, uh, buy one, give one, or yeah, whatever. So I've been thinking a lot about that with with as i work with more companies with with the the bed model Mm. and i'd love to find a way where you buy a bed and i grow a sec you 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 pay me to grow that second bed you buy 30 but pay me for 60 or you buy 30 and you get 15 and i donate 15 on your behalf Mm -hmm. right so here's all these ways that i can do the work and layer it on as a service for you you get to tell the Mm. world you donated uh twenty thousand dollars or ten thousand pounds or whatever of food to these food banks, you know, yep. I'll set up the distribution, I'll do it all, but like you'll pay for it. And to me, it's, it's in working with companies that, that, that very well might be possible and that might be able to create access for food. I also think a lot about this idea of getting a food truck and like uh, the good humor mobile, like basically loading up a food truck and being a mobile farmer's market. I think that'd be fun. It's going to work. Yeah. I thought about doing that with uh, tasting menus. Going to a random park and just saying we're doing six courses right now. Well, okay. Like right now. Yeah, like right now. <laughs> like, so here's the other thing I thought about. I've actually thought about going on because I love road trips. I've actually thought about this idea. And it, we'd have to have a larger brand or like there'd have to be good mm-hmm. marketing around it. Where we load up here with produce from whatever farms and we drive to Bend, Oregon. And along the way, we cook food and we run out of food when we get to the next like we time and you have so to re-up and you have to re-up and then you use that food and you get back on the road it's like buying gasoline right? yeah, we yeah, buy yeah. gasoline in this town but we use it all the way to mm-hmm. the next town mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. kind of like buying produce of one area and kind of moving around the country it'd be sure. a sweet way to be on a road trip it's an interesting idea you enjoy this I got this just for you you did? yeah thank you I appreciate that farmhouse yeah. cider JK's Justin Kana's ah <laughs> no, there you go there you go northern neighbor yeah you requested a farmhouse cider. How does it how does it compare? I've never had it before. Saskatoon cuvee. Well, it makes me think about Saskatoon. Uh, a part of this, which is a part of my love of food, and maybe we'll get into. I don't know. I'm trying to think about how to tie it in. Mm-hmm. Is I'm deep. One of my best friends is Swedish. Got it. And um, a lot of the great inside jokes in my life are with this Swedish person. I think there's something about. This is going to say a lot about me. I, I was blown away by how well Swedes know English mm-hmm. and specifically my friend Arvid, like how someone who doesn't speak our language natively understands the nuances in humor. Sure. And the only way I can prove it is this guy might know more lines of the Big Lebowski than I do. <laughs> and to me, the Big Lebowski is like one of the great <laughs> movies of like language mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just like the, the humor right. that language throughout a movie can have. And mm-hmm. when I first met him in Australia, uh, literally... We were just kind of on this island. Have you been to Australia? I have not. Yeah. There's a cool place there called Fraser Island, which is just this big sand island, not too dissimilar from the outer banks of North Carolina, just mm-hmm. these sand islands. And they put you in this hostel and you get a group of 10, blah, blah, blah. You drive for a few days. They give you tents and all the food. And Arvid was in there and everyone wanted to just get drunk in the back. And I really was, a, I didn't know how to drive stick shift. I like barely knew. And I was obsessed with the idea of driving stick shift on the right side of the car with my left hand. You know, right, like, right. I was like, I'll do it. And right so, side of the car, yeah, wrong side of the road. Yeah. And not knowing how you do it. And you were just <laughs> driving on a beach. 
and uh, Arvid and his girlfriend at the time, Sophie, were in the front seat, and we just fucking tore it up. Just all of these big Lebowski lines. He like knew it so well. Anyway, he's a huge friend of mine, and I would say like that's another huge wave of food in my life is is like Fabakin, mm. right? I mean, you want to mm-hmm. talk about a place that has had huge impact on me. Maybe I can tie it into the walnuts. I'll get yeah, there. Yeah, I know yeah. we're yeah, yeah. entreeing into that, but yeah. like, um, so there's a place I went to twice, right? Once, really? Yeah, once about four or five years apart. And last time I was there, it was maybe 2000 and, I think it was 2015 because I was looking at my passport <laughs> when I realized it wasn't expired. I was like, when did I go somewhere? And it's like, oh, that's when I flew in and out of Frankfurt to go mm-hmm. visit Arvid for his wedding. And I went up and that was in August. And I was there in August 2015, actually on my birthday. Saw the Northern Lights. I mean, dude, stellar. So nice, you know. And uh, and you've been up in north those mm-hmm. northern mm-hmm. climbs. It's you know it's it's there's a beauty there. And as someone who loves nature, I love I love it up there. But I'd gone, I guess in I can't remember whether it was eleven or twelve. I think it was two thousand eleven. Mm-hmm. It was long enough that when I went there, you know, I'd stayed I stayed there both times. And I stayed there, and Magnus came up to the you know in, in, you know it's so small, right? I mean everyone. You know, and they've got great service as well. But Magnus is like, you know, it's you said that you've been here before, but I can't find you in our system. And I said, yeah, you know, I think it was 2011 or something. He goes, oh, that's why we got a new system. We updated our system in 2012. Sure. Right. So what I re- the way I found out about it, Arvid knew about it because Arvid loves food, right? And um, and I love, you know, Arvid. First time I went to Willow's Inn was with Arvid. Right, mm-hmm. he flew over from Europe, and, and it's been great to kind of connect with someone around that, you know, cross cultures. There's a beauty there uh, for me in my life. Um, I'd read this article. I'm sure some of your listeners and guests have read it, or they can go look for it. I think I don't know if Renee won. What is it called? World's Fifty Best, probably. Mm, World's Fifty Best, mm-hmm. or the isn't there another one? The Bush door or something. Oh, Boku's door. Yeah, yeah Boku's door. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, one of those two, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I don't think Renee is a competition guy, but okay. there, there are a couple Danish guys who like kill it. Well, was I'm pretty sure this was a Renee quote, okay. right? So I remember reading this New York Times article, and I imagine it's 2011, which will tell me when I went, and it was like Scandinavian cooking, and it was, of course, very much about Noma, and I don't know when Noma was started, but 2011 seems like square in there, mm-hmm. like... That's when I went. That's when I staged. Okay. When no one knew, wait, people knew, like the the, the people knew. Okay, so that's early Noma. Yeah, yeah. So like the people knew that was right when he got World's 50 Best, number one. So that's it. Totally. So I read this New York Times article and it's like, I'm bastardizing and paraphrasing at the same time. (laughs) So Renee, you can uh, email me. Yeah. Let let Justin know in his (laughs) comments that I got it wrong. Um, It's basically like, Thank you. Like, I'm honored. Like, you think I'm doing cool shit. You should go check out this guy, Magnus, up north. Ooh. You know, and I was just like, okay. Yeah. And I was like, I'd already booked my ticket. I was like, what am I going to do when I go there? And I was going to go there for two weeks. And so, you know, both times I've gone, it's this overnight train from Stockholm to, uh, where did you get off? Oster? No, Ure. Mm-hmm. A R E. I don't know how to pronounce mm-hmm. it. I, Arvin and I have spent about 20 minutes for me <laughs> trying to get the Ure, In, right? Or whatever, right? A R E with the A and the O. Okay. Right. Great overnight train. I went skiing, you know, which was incredible because it was dark at two. And then I ran in a car and, and went over the hill to Yarpin. And uh, it was, you know, 
unbelievable. I I still remember the sous chef walking up the stairs. With you've been to Falvican or no? Not? I haven't. So it's upstairs. Oh, the kitchen's downstairs and everything's upstairs. Mm-hmm. And like you pretty much, maybe, pretty much if you're five feet or taller, you're gonna hit your head on like this floor. So like everyone's kind of got a duck every time you go up and down, but they're they're doing it. The sous chef comes up the stairs holding a cow femur. Magnus saws it open. It had just been roasted on the fire. Saws it open, scoops out the marrow, mixes it with some endive or radicchio and raw heart. And like that was the dish, you know. I still remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, whoa, where the fuck am I? Man? <laughs> um, but again, it was like there's a place that's like really honoring so much, honoring nature at the end of the day, mm-hmm. right? Honoring the versatility and that dynamic, and not doing what we love to do, love to do with nature, which is clear a patch of sand in Florida or a part of a rainforest in the Amazon and give me a thousand acres of blank whatever and some water and I'll bring fertilizers and corn seed and a tractor and, and pretend like it's all equal. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's that other side, which is it's all different and we want to celebrate and talk about that. And so I also think there's elements being the further you go from a city or anywhere, like people do start playing with those outer edges of food and the restaurant world. So, you know, that happens a little bit at Favakin. Um, Daniel Berlin, actually, which is where the next time I went, the second time I went to Favakin was for Arvid's birthday or Arvid's wedding. And shockingly, Arvid got married like weekend X in his hometown of um, on this island in the Baltic, which is great, called Gotland, which you should mm-hmm. go to if you ever okay. are over there. And like somehow his fiance slash then to be wife um, let him go down to Copenhagen with me the weekend before their wedding, like sure. Saturday to Tuesday or Wednesday before his wedding and we went to Daniel Berlin and that place to me was actually incredible and I think that I'm getting to your under the walnuts mm-hmm. but it's not lost on me mm-hmm. because I think there's an element of under the walnuts which which started Daniel Berlin sure which was it was the first time I'd been somewhere where it was a forced dish not in they made everyone get out of their seats and have a dish in the garden we got this warm carrot soup and that movement mm. I never experienced in food before. Again, mm. talking about that classic walk up somewhere, sit down at a table, sure. maybe go to the bathroom. Mm. That movement was very unique to me. Mm-hmm. And also probably looked down upon in the beginning of like back to that thing I was talking about fine dining where like the last thing that you want to do is ask someone to do something like especially strenuous. Mm-hmm. It should all just be seamless. Ooh. The idea. <laughs> The idea that it should all just be seamless is, I don't know, like that takes so much out of it where the Onyx, because you don't want the bad review. You don't want the people who didn't get it, quote unquote. And so people play it safe. But that was a very revolutionary concept concept for you. and Favikin's like that as yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And Favikin's like that as well, because you have the you have the opening, um, you know, whatever you call them, hors d'oeuvres or amuse-bouche downstairs. Mm-hmm. Still remember eating the fried lichen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the story was of the reindeer. That's why I love Favakin, man. Sure. Because, I mean, the next time I went there, and Magnus tells this story about 
back in the day, the ancestors would create butter and bury it under the moss and then go nomadically around and then come back to where they buried it and they'd pull up the moss and there'd be this butter there and it was like infused with the notes of the earth. And so like maybe he tried it, maybe he didn't and he didn't pretend that what he was giving you was that, but it was like herbed butter with Mm -hmm. kind of the essence of the season, like a compound butter, but it was like, there was more to it than just yeah that mailing you're, it in. You're, you're telling a history mm. of people mm-hmm. and people's connection to food, right? It can go off the rails and be like about Magnus or about some crazy concept, but that's like a history of our people, and that's like this concept of oral tradition, which is what I love about farming. But it was it was bound in food, and so you know both of these guys and and and. Um, I even had a third. This old place called it's not there anymore. Called um, Mirasol. Mirasol. Hmm. And so it was no longer there in mm-hmm. Southern. It's the only time I've ever had a meal where I actually thought each. It was very crazy. And I'd love to show you some pictures. Yeah, I yeah. think they're all on my. Mm-hmm. Each dish felt like it felt like the meal could have been called rainbow, and each dish was an homage to another color. Interesting. And I thought that was incredible. Hmm. It blew my mind, right? I was like, what if you made a meal where, again, like we're mm-hmm. playing with the, and I mm-hmm. think people are doing some of these great things. But what of if you course. did, dish one was was white, mm-hmm. dish two was purple, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because it was like beets and like raw lamb, right? Yep. And it was like celeriac, white radish, and... Cream. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, that was cool. But... To get to under the walnuts, um, I mean, again, man, I, I, I'll take the egotistical approach of like when I came up with it. I mean, mm. I don't know, man. There must have been so many passive experiences in my life that made me think about it. But the first, I would say the seeds of under the walnuts, um, you know, not negating what happened the first 30 five years of my life that maybe led to under the walnuts um in 2016 when i was working at matthews uh we 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 had a dinner series right the first year there i was starting with jj the farm kind of a confused situation but we grew food and began to get introduced to the chefs of seattle because we had food to sell and that's when i first met ed and walked into solare and uh, logan and Eli bought, you know, bought most of my food that year. In 2016, I kind of pitched Matthews on the idea, and they were willing to do it. As we 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 had a dinner series of four chefs. Um, it, the first one was Micah and JJ. Then was Logan. Then was Bobby Moore. Did one from Barking Frog, although it got canceled because it was super windy, and he ended up doing it in like February. That was a concept. And then Eli. I still remember Eli out there, and 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 his girlfriend at the time, who was doing front of house and back of the stuff mandy just like trying to cook in this like cold november night you know in their puff in their puffies you know mm. and so to me like and then flash forward 2016 goes to 17 and we start equilibrium right and we we get the farm i get the farm and and um you know through the conversations of that whole season you know mike and i had been talking and in 2016 and 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 colin you know i finally kind of make the deal with colin and 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 buy the farm and and um skip stays on the farm manager and so all these concepts take off and um we didn't really have it in 2017 right equilibrium did not have a 
a under the walnuts, despite the fact that you and Jack cooked under the walnuts, right? Totally. And so I don't know why that gap was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on. We, you know, it wasn't until maybe March that I bought the farm. Bought the farm. You know, I don't own the land, but you know, bought the assets. Started Equilibrium. Um, well, Equilibrium actually. Had must have come up with the word in like 2015 and I was like oh I got a file for a so I had a company for like three years without actually doing sure, anything right because sure. I like the word sure. um, and I will say that if I could change it I would spell it E-K-O-L-I-B-R-I-U-M which is an homage to again my friend Arvid because ekologis uh, is the word uh, for uh, organic in, in Swedish right. I imagine it can't be that far no, in Norwegian yeah. mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so I think you know that uh, you know you you and and jack having that event there um i mean i think you're the first guy that cooked there i, I think yours was before mm-hmm. it was jack's mm-hmm. um you know and the shocking thing is you know colin and, and sufco you know when i first took it over and i remember i remember actually we had a we had a csa at matthews in 2016 and i convinced skip to let me uh I, I knew they weren't harvesting enough of homegrown tomatoes. And I convinced Skip to the day after they harvested homegrown tomatoes to come let me come in and glean some, so I could put some tomatoes in our in our um, CSA box. And I, you know, I didn't own eco, I didn't own the farm at that point. And I remember kind of walking around, and realizing like there was that fire pit back there, which sure. has now been moved. Yep. Actually, uh, it's now where the hearth is. Got it. It was under five feet of grass. You know, wow. they didn't they didn't use. The idea of an event space, there was none of that. They were doing production farming and only that. Whereas I think what you can tell with us is it's about bringing people out. And for lack of a better term, it's, you know, something that, you know, Mike and I uh, talked a lot about is, you know, this idea of bringing, connecting people closer to um, themselves, each other in nature. Right. And and that, that that's that space. Right. And in that is this I, the same ideas of kind of why I was at the outdoor school and the beauty I think nature has for mm-hmm. us. Um, mm-hmm. <coughs> so we flash forward to 2017 and um, you come out. Let's go for it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think we'd cut the same trees down yet. You know, mm-hmm. we're focused on, mm-hmm. on the farming. There wasn't a, there wasn't running water. There wasn't benches to prep on. I think we did the first part of our prepping on the dining room table because guests weren't there yet. But what was that? Was it those green... What did you eat on? Because we did not have it those. was those green yeah, picnic. It was benches. green picnic tables, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, at some point in the winter of seventeen, going into eighteen, as Mike and I were talking, um, it became obvious that the kind of doing and formalizing this, you know, as part of the culinary program, was um, what we needed to do. And, um, you know, I'm sure there's, you know, given that, 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 that Micah was a part of this, I'm sure there's elements of, of his story that, that come into this, you know, I only know the bit of kind of the Matthews idea, you guys out there, that's my memory of it. You know, we put together a list. I knew I wanted Jack and Chris, if they could do it, I knew I wanted you because those are the two people that had done it. And I felt like it was only appropriate to offer it to all the people that bought from us. Right. Right. That that's where we start with, because what we're trying to do is create community. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I also think there's a deep kind of like, you know, I think I must have known of outstanding in the field. Right. And I think there's like a deep cultural cachet to it. Right. Mm-hmm. A little bit of an underground dinner series. Um, you guys offer something that nobody else offers, though. Like, t- like, yes, Herb Farm takes you through the field. 
No, they don't. Kind of. Not no, really. No, like It's the like garden. the front garden area. the garden that they don't yeah. even really use. That garden for yeah, totally. So like, tell me another. I mean, this is Daniel Berlin, man. Yeah, this is this is what tell Daniel Berlin is place. because Daniel Berlin. <laughs> I mean, I I had I, I asked when I was staying at Favakin because I got there early the second time, someone could walk me around the fields, and they did. And I think you know Magnus didn't do it. And the next you know later, I had them show me the you know all their stuff because I was very interested as a farmer. But like. Daniel Berlin takes you there. Where else does it? Give me a second to think about this. You know, French Laundry could because mm-hmm. they're farming a lot right across the street. Some people do. Some people will show up a little early and if they can catch the tail end of when Aaron is there or, you know, like yeah, whoever's yeah. farming, but it's they'll not get built, a tour. But it's not built in. Nope. And so, who else? But, but, but you know, we're also not fucking a restaurant. You know? know. And it's like, great, enjoy it. Uh, by the way, walk for five minutes, go to the porta potty, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this weird mm-hmm. tension with me. It's like... Managing expectations. Managing expectations like... Embracing imperfection, right? Like all of it. All yeah. like I don't know. So much of this conversation has been the wonderful experience of you spinning a web and then trying to like seeing, being able to see where all the strings connect yeah. in the best way. Yeah. But like thinking about your feedback towards like it's not the French laundry in the best way, right? Right. Um, it's not all that far off. Right. Because you have very talented chefs working with produce that's less than a mile away right? right like less than half a mile away it's right there right um so something that we're building in this year which became obvious so i will just say that like i loved all of the under the walnuts last year and they stand out for a lot of different reasons i felt like the people that became the closest to that ideal I had of really breaking stuff down and just playing with stuff. And it might not be surprising was Jack and Chris. And I think there's multiple reasons why one is Jack had done it before. And I think so, I, you know, some of them interest people do it again. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. you weren't as surprised by things in 2018 Correct. as in 17. Cause you're mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's gonna, this is weird and we, mm-hmm. we don't have this, but we don't have that. And so, and we might've been easier because 17 was so hard. So you're actually able to spend more time thinking about, the food and your concepts Correct. versus like, how am I supposed to do this? Mm-hmm. So first go around, it's like, Jesus is so hard because what's happened is most chefs are trying to transplant what they know of the yep. kitchen yep. onto there and the rules are different. Right. Right. And so this is Jack and Chris of the herb farm this is for ja- everybody. Jack. Yeah. Jack and Chris of the herb farm. So, so Jack had been there before. So that wasn't a surprise. They're a tandem of chef and sous chef. So there's just this idea of like compadre mm. companion who bounce ideas off of like we can go out on a limb because we're here to protect each other kind of thing which Mm -hmm. just allows for uh, more everything and and so there's that Um, the thing I found that they did that was so incredible and it took me a while to realize they were doing this was they got something every week of from me throughout the season and it turned out that the way they structured the meal was the thing they got from me the first which was fava beans they turned into a fava bean miso and they made it dish one. And so the meal was actually a marching through the Time. season. They took garlic from me and made black garlic and used that. So it was like this very cool thing. But the thing that really got me was like they moved people around in a way that no one else did. Most mm-hmm. of it was like the walnuts to the fire. Yep. We did a course over in the orchard. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't have the orchard for a lot of the other Sure meals because i got it like late july but it got me thinking about this thing which is i want to include 
you know, if what we can really do is break down conventional elements, and what we're really trying to do is connect people to food, there needs to be in some way perhaps both, but at least one of either an agricultural act or a culinary act that is done by the diners, right? Mm -hmm. Like what is the four, like when you talk about acting, the fourth wall is don't look at the camera, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so breaking down the fourth wall is something that like the office did, Mm -hmm. right? Which Mm is, you know, groundbreaking. Uh, Adam McKay movies do it a lot as well, right? But by and large movies still don't break down the fourth wall. Um, The fourth wall in, in, in the restaurant is guests don't, Touch the food. Touch. They don't prep. Guests. Guests don't get a knife in their hand, and they don't. Mm. And they don't saute something. Right. Right. And so, how can we play with that? Mm. Because now, all of a sudden, the guest, you know, they're not going to cook the meal. But like, you want to talk about validating a two hundred dollar ticket or one hundred eighty dollar ticket? All the food and wine, and the chef is great. But like, you picked apples and cored them, and then it was a galette or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the chef, like the chef needs to think about how it, so that's the, it's a playfulness as well that I'm going to charge the chefs with. Find a way to get the diners cooking, mm-hmm. whatever that means to you, mm-hmm. whether it's go out and harvest. And this plays on this, this, this trope that I've thought about a lot. I, I don't know if I'd ever have a restaurant. I don't think I, I, I would need a, uh, a team, right? I mean, the company of equilibrium eventually could, if I have the right structural place, but I don't have enough, um, organization to do it myself. I've always had this idea that as you walk up to the major D you walk through a greenhouse and you grab some sort of food and you hand it to the major D and, uh, that piece of food ends up coming back to you. Weaves its way into yeah. your mouth. And I've always thought about, I, do yeah, you know yeah. of any places that do that? Yeah, Cause there's there has a place, to be. There's a place in Spain called Azurmendi. Okay. And the, your first few, you, you drink your champagne in a greenhouse and sometimes there's little snacks hidden amongst the tomato plants or like your first few snacks are in the greenhouse and then you make your way into the dining room. But do you harvest like, anything? Um, good question. Because that's the component that I like is the diner harvests something sure. that, that for whatever reason they choose hands it to the maitre d' mm-hmm. and then somehow at some point finds its way mm-hmm. into your dish. Right. Which right. is a logistical nightmare. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't get mm-hmm. me wrong, mm-hmm. you know, on so many levels. True, but for us, like, one of the things we did last year was we had people pick nasturtium flowers and tempura right. them. That's right. Because that's right. it was the only place where that could exist. It's the only place where that idea could exist, is tempura frying a nasturtium flower would not work if I, as a chef, went to a farmer's market and bought those nasturtiums because they would be floppy and dead, right? That's right. And I gave you some earlier in the week, and you had too heavy of a batter, right? Mm -hmm. I remember Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So, like, totally. I'm right on board with it. It's going back to that idea of, like, is it for fluff's sake or does it actually... That's my thing, and for some other chefs are, are the opposite, and they don't... That is... They they enjoy that kind of like playfulness quality to it right. and being able to say that like, I don't know, these carrots taste different than other carrots because they were grown in the soil that has X, Y, Z. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, it matters, but um, yeah, bringing me a tomato and asking me to tempura fry it versus here's this thing that can only exist here. That's right. a little bit cooler to me. Y- yeah, I think that that element of fluff definitely needs to be thought mm-hmm. about. I think that goes back to kind of being genuine. 
some element of genuine. Like I don't want to set up the container that it's like you're either genuine or you're really thirsty. Right. But there's something mm-hmm. there. There's a where, spectrum. Yeah. There's a spectrum. And I don't know if the opposite of thirsty is genuine actually, but it's um, something like grounded and just like mm-hmm. intentional maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. What, what's what been your experience? I mean, I know that I'm going to flip it a little. Yeah, I'm no, that's fine. Out, it's like, fine, yeah. Um, like what are, what are you digging about eco living? Sure. Um, again, back to the idea that you guys are thinking about what a farm can be yeah. differently than anybody else that I've spoken with. Yeah. Um, because it's more than just the product. It's what else can we do with the fact that we have land and we grow food and we're in this place yeah. where um, people are open-minded enough. People have pocketbooks that are deep enough. People um, are excited enough about where we are to help support what it is that you do. And you guys are taking it and you're running with it. And I love that. Like so much of the reason that I left restaurants is because I realized that they aren't on the fine dining side all that profitable at the end of the day. That's one of the reasons why the cookbook exists. That's why the chef goes on TV. That's one of the reasons why you have a bistro just down the street is to help float the other boat. Right. And so for me to think about things that are outside of the conventional use of what a chef does, you guys are doing something that's very similar. Yeah. And it also doesn't hurt the fact that like your stuff is super good. (laughs) Your product is super delicious. And part of that comes down to like what you inherently know about food and what you like, you're not thinking about what Jack and Sally in Madrona are going to think about when their CSA arrives, you're thinking about what does this very discerning back to like the criticism. Like, I feel like you self critique yourself before you pick something. Yeah. Right. And that shows in the product. And I think that that is, that also like helps someone like me or someone that actually has a restaurant that is going through hundreds of pounds of food a week is how great is it that you are that first critique buffer Right. Right, Like how many people get their produce and it's like we would have that in Norway, like these weird organic farmers who like, why did you send us this? Like this is not ready. This is not good. This is not like there's clearly like dirt or mulch in this that is just not like this wasn't critiqued by any by any like but you have that. Right. So that's what I dig about Equalor and the fact that like you're so focused on thinking about how chefs play a role with you guys and how it goes the other way. Yeah. I mean, think about us as a, as a chef driven farm and Mm -hmm, a, mm -hmm. and a farm driven culinary program. I think, you know, for me, I think about what the chef wants because I think at the end of the day, like that's what Sally and Joe and Madrona want. Correct. You know, they want to know that Eduardo's using these turnips. That's right. That's on a certain level. Totally. Sally and Joe Madrona, right? When we're talking about the food bank, other stuff Mm -hmm. is not different, but I also want to like watch out for this idea that we give seconds to food banks. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that there's a real Mm -hmm. issue there. Mm -hmm. I think that that again, that's why I want that idea of the one-to-one. Sure. Like food banks and people in need deserve the best food. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and this goes into another thing of like nutrition school and like I would love to partner with a university or an organization. I really want, you know, there's industrial agriculture, there's industrial organic, and then there's what we're doing, mm-hmm. right? And you read Third Plate and, you know, mm-hmm. Jack talks about 16.7 bricks and yep. sh- you don't care. I, you know, sugar oftentimes can correlate to, to, I mean, you can breed for sugar, but it probably correlates to other nutrients. 
I can see a day where you walk into a grocery store. This is another idea I have about a restaurant where you walk in and, and I know that it's against HIPAA laws, but the maitre, maitre d' says to you, uh, what, what, what um, ailments do you have? Mm-hmm. You know, do you have cancer of mm-hmm. what? You know, heart disease? And you get the heart disease menu. Interesting. And, and I could see a day where you walk into a grocery store and there's broccoli and there's, I mean, I still remember reading this article where, so, so there's this, this, this anti-carcinogenic um, compound in, in, in brassicas called um, isothiocyanates, right? And, and um, basically it's the sulfur-containing compounds. And basically when we chew it, it meets up with another, I think it meets up with the glucosinolates or something, so, 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 or morosinase, right? And it, it's this, the, the act of chewing brings these two things together, which you know, opens up the compound, right? We can leach it out when we boil it, uh, but not when we saute it, right? So sauteing it keeps it intact, boiling it leaches it out. So, it, you know, we think about all those things. But I remember reading about if you pass it under a UV light, it increases the level in reaction to the assault by UV light. It, and it's what you'd imagine, right? UV, we know, creates cancer. Mm-hmm. So what does something that passes under UV light want to do is cre- you know, increase its anti, if it's got the ability right. to, increase its cancer-fighting properties. Um, and, and so all of a sudden, like, okay, well, what if we passed 30% of all broccoli under UV light and sold it as the anti-carcinogenic? And, and, and that's a mere mm-hmm. fraction of what I think is possible with food. What we need to know is that all food's not made the same. We can look at a carrot, and it's like don't judge a book by its cover kind of thing. I, I would love to get better data. And there's been one big study that shows that there's no difference between the nutrient value of organic versus non-organic, I would A, like to know who paid for that study. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a huge conspiracy theorist, but I know, I, I understand enough about the world to know the forces that work. Mm-hmm. Who paid for the study? Also, are we talking about industrial versus industrial organic? Are we talking about industrial versus like what we're doing, which is really soil-based regenerative agriculture where we're really paying attention to not just the chemistry of the soil, right? And this is, this is a big shift in my mind is that Typically, people have approached soil from a chemistry standpoint. If I have soil and I dump in these chemicals or even these nutrients, the chemicals is like fertilizers. Nutrients could still be blood meal, feather meal, all the things I've used. And I was guilty of this for 10 years. We're doing organic and small-scale organic. I was thinking about the chemicals. If I make the chemistry of the soil right, the plants will grow to a shift to the biology. And it's there where I think the answer is. I think a lot more is in the soil than we think. And if we make the right environment for the microbiota to be there, it'll unlock all of the keys of nature so that it can be accessible by the plant. And um, I would love to see more research come out about that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah. That's that thought. I want to go into rapid fire questions, but I also oh. want to acknowledge the props that you brought. Okay. So, do you want to chat through a couple? Yeah, of these sure. Things? So, I brought these things for three different reasons. Main, I mean, no, mm-hmm. I I brought these things for one reason. They were randomly in my car, and I was driving over here. I was like, "Shit, man! Like, I'm going to do this." And there's a visual component, yeah. and I have no, no props. So, mm. I was on the farm earlier today. This is an atlas carrot that was planted on, you know, also time, also sometimes called the Parisian market. Um. Thumbelina. Yep. These are yep. all different terms. That's what right? I'm familiar with it as, Thumbelina carrot. Atlas would be the the branded name that Johnny sells it as. Mm. Uh, Parisian market is probably the conceptual thing because I think they were famous in the 
Paris markets. We have to taste it. We yeah. have to wash it, taste it, and talk about the notes of. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. But but, right. but but let me let me explain the three, mm-hmm. and then we'll go do it. Um, mm-hmm. I found that in the field, man. I, I realized that there's three huh. rows of carrots that are still holding in the field. Some of the one of the great things, if it was a normal March and the temps were more in the 40s and 30s at night, and maybe even getting in the 50s, they would have rotted. I bet in a week th- these will be rotting because the rot's probably close to there, but it's not warm enough, so it's just dormant. Once those warm temps, which we're expected to see by, I mean, it's meant to be 65 degrees on Sunday and one wow. day. Wow. Um, that rot's going to set in, but I mean, we still have winter right there, right? Mm. And actually, we have summer. That was August 19th that was seeded. Wow. Okay. Then I was in the greenhouse today, and I realized that I thought it was chickweed underneath the remay that I had. And I look in, and I mean, this is an unbelievable beet yep. that, again, was planted sometime in September. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. So this is another thing from the farm, from the greenhouse. Mm-hmm. Again, I think what, I, what is interesting to me is you see a plant there that was pulled out of the ground in your carrot. It has no greens because there was frost damage. But it's intact, and yeah, there's not even any... it's not any, soft. Yeah, like no, it's not, not squishy. This now, because it was under remay in a greenhouse and got to a base level of height, survived. And there's actually a fair amount of foliage on this. This is a pretty substantial beet mm-hmm. for being effectively a six-month-old beet, mm-hmm. right? Beets mm-hmm. are meant to be 50, 60 to 70 days, and this is 180 days. Sure. And then this, to the average chef out there, would be an onion ready for dicing. Mm. We are actually going to plant these. Um, and huh. this, to me, is like, um, this to me is like you know, we, maybe, maybe, you know, in a couple of years we'll do another podcast. If you invite me back, we'll totally. talk about other things. Totally. But, but, you know, we haven't talked a lot about, like, the ideas of oral tradition. And, like, we live in this really data-driven world. And, I, I, you know, I, I always say we live in the most cognitive times of all. And we live in the most cognitive country you know cognitive place in the most cognitive times of all right and people are really up here mm. and i think a lot about these three strands of life the cognitive the emotional and the physical and we are very cognitive right um and i think we can do cognitive physical kind of well but but all three areas need to be attended to because that's what it means to live sure and i don't think there's we're ever gonna get away from that unless we all turn into spocks right and then we can be cognitive yeah. physical yeah and i worry when we damp one down and, and they're dials right mm-hmm. we only have enough we only have a certain amount of allocation and um i think in my life you know my i was very cognitive early on and my emotional came and then actually i think my more physical self came later i think about the head the heart and the loins right we mm-hmm. talk about a lot of different ways um but a, that's just a real aside that I don't even know where I'm going, but somehow it ties back to this onion. But I got to think about why it ties back. Planting to it, planting that. Yeah, planting the onion, but but more so. Oh, the oral tradition. Mm. You know, with the cognitive times, it's all about data, right? We start an app. We look at the YouTube users. Sure, right? it's 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 this cognitive. I mean, mm-hmm. hi YouTube. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm glad yeah. you're listening to us. It's not <laughs> that, but like we just live in these cognitive times. I want to create space for the emotional and the physical. And oral traditions to me are not necessarily about cognition as much. They're stories. They're tales. They tell something that might not be supported by data. And um, you know, the idea of planting this onion, and it might be even really late, but Chris told me about it. You know, from the herb farm, there's this I, the, the calsot onion. Are you familiar with the calsot no. onion? Mm-mm. I think there's this region in Spain called calsot, perhaps, and they they are probably a pretty big. I, I, I'd be interested to know if Valencia is that in Spain? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oranges. 
Yeah, and, and onions. The Valencia mm-hmm. onions, a well-known mm-hmm. onion. Mm-hmm. I think I'd be surprised if it wasn't that far. And so they take part of their harvest and they plant it immediately. I imagine what it actually is is part of the harvest that it never actually was harvested. Got and it. so what happens is we all know that the green of the onion sticks mm-hmm. up. Well, if you put this in the ground, this is going to rot away as the green of the onion pushes up. And you, you get this kind of weird spring onion but green onion and i the, the point is to put it in the winter and i didn't i'm gonna put them in now but we're not gonna get bulbed onions until july or august so if i put this in though we're gonna have these spring onions by like late april early may sure pushing up so there's gonna be a product that we can deal with and to buy three sacks of onions to plant them so this is effectively a seed right so we have winter in the field Winter in the greenhouse and and a seed of of spring. Fascinating. So that's that. I do think we should cut this up. I do want to cut that open. I want to do it for um, Patreon folks as like a behind the scenes video. We'll do it in a different framing than this, but we'll cut it up after this interview. Yeah, totally. Totally. That's a good idea. Did we leave anything out before we go into some rapid fire questions? Is there anything else that you want to speak on or... Yeah, of course. Yeah, of but course. Go. It warrants an episode <laughs> too, for sure. For yeah, I mean, the psychology part of it, you know, I really think a lot about, um, yeah, I really think a lot about mental health mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and how farming can tie into it. Totally. Right? There's no surprise that, like, for drug addicts mm-hmm. and people recovering, like, a horticultural therapy is, is there. And I've thought about it. And that's what took me to grad school, you know, um, also think something that'd be interesting to talk about whether it's me or someone else is like what is food mm-hmm. i think on some mm-hmm. level like there's only one definition of what is food and that is things that are edible right and i want to i would love to explore the ideas of a convention around what we believe food is yep um because food is something that is edible and it's been homogenized mm. and it's been homogenized by grocery stores and just convention of society and probably um, you know, so I want to talk about that. I think that chefs, and this is where I think the interesting and the creative and the fun thing, and I think it's why people respond to it. Um, you know, I think of chefs as the painters and farmers as the paint makers yep. in a sense. Yep. And you've heard me tell that before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's that element of it, um, that I, that I would love to talk about. And then, you know, just things about nutrition, but yep. no, we haven't, we haven't left a ton out. It's good, though, because when I'm listening back and I'm like, how yeah. do I write my questions for episode two? Yeah. Yeah. What is, what, is, what is food yeah. is, a, is a big okay. one. Okay. Um, there's one other thing, but I'll probably blur it that's out fine. in a couple no, minutes. That's fine. You're standing in your kitchen on the first day after your work week. It can be Saturday. It doesn't have to be a Saturday. How do you make your eggs for yourself? It's in the morning or it doesn't even matter? It doesn't even I matter. I mean, I make eggs one way and one mm. way only. Okay. Which is? Grab this. Yeah. You set it either seven minutes mm-hmm. or six and a half. You set it to seven. When the water boils, you hit start, and then you go find the eggs and put them in. <laughs> or you set it to six and a half, and you put the eggs in, and then you hit start. Right. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of the six and a half minute egg. Got it. I'm a, yeah. Okay. Or. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Or. And I, you know, I told Chris and Jack this, and they looked at me and they're like, "You're an idiot." Dan Barber's been doing this forever, but I would like to think of this as convergent evolution. Mm. I was on the farm. You know, I love dusk. Last August, maybe July, we had just gotten a fresh load of wood chips. 
and I look over and they're steaming huh. because it was brand new. They were in the back of the truck and I reached my hand there. It's so hot. And I immediately, someone had dropped eggs off or maybe the next day I come back, I dig about a two foot pit. I put the eggs in, I put a flag on, put a shit back over, put the eggs on, push it back on and um, come back 24 hours later. And it's incredible what happens. Wow. It was, it was, the white was not quite firm. Water was definitely on the white. I mean, we all know what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. I'm talking about cooking in compost, which is not that different from sous vide. Mm-hmm. I get it. Mm-hmm. But like being on the farm, seeing something steaming, pulling it back, dropping something in, and it's wood chips, right? It's different than food waste or definitely animal manure compost right. because I don't believe to the degree that pathogens exist, the pathogens or the bacteria, which is effectively what compost is, it's a bacteria acting upon uh, uh, green green waste um, that's on cedar wood chips is different than that's on than that which is on food and so I just think it's like le- I'm less worried about food safety mm-hmm. in a situation in which I'm talking about the bacteria on, on on cedar chips and I came back and and it was the most custardy wow um, it was incredible. Did so, the porous nature of the eggshell make it taste any... It, it didn't. The outside did, so there's uh-huh. elements of the smell, and it was... Um, if you've ever roasted an egg, that's something mm-hmm. we do like in uh, mm-hmm. around Passover and for the Seder plate is we roast an egg and it gets those spots on it. There was stains. There were stains. Brown stains. But um, there, was that, there was that smell, but but no. But So either compost or six and a half minute egg. <laughs> so either 24-hour egg or six, or and, six half and a half minutes. Yeah, yeah. Name an ingredient you're obsessed with right now. obsessed with right now well it's interesting because you mainly you mainly uh interview chefs don't mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. ingredient i'm obsessed with right now it can be a seed Cut. it can be a vegetable yeah, yeah, it can yeah, be yeah, a yeah, plant yeah yeah um kyle made a like he he made this like honey fermented squash whoa what did he do the squash and some like honey and then he added some honey and he took like the the liquid off of it and ended up making honey mustard out of it and I'm putting it on all my sandwiches so there's that sounds good yeah is there a book that's been particularly impactful in your saga that you've read and it's kind of made you think differently about a certain topic it doesn't have to be farming related but oh yeah I mean the market gardener the market gardener. Market gardener by Jean Martin Fortier. Mm. Uh, up and up and you know, and he's the leader in my mind of uh you know, there's a couple there's a couple great farms. I mean there's these air you know, the other thing is we could talk about the history of uh, that'd be another thing mm. when we listen to yeah, yeah. the history of organic agriculture, right? Got it. The first wave, which is right around World War Two, right? Because everything was organic agriculture beforehand, typically mm-hmm. before the war, World War Two. Then there was this kind of like middle era where it was like just back to the landers. And then there was the next era in the 70s and 80s where people began writing books and they began becoming the first popularized. And there was a guy named Elliot Coleman in Maine that was the first big one. And he was probably talking about forty or $50,000 an acre as the growing potential. And Jean Martin was the first guy I heard of that was growing 100000 an acre. And um, I've had the, uh, the you know, great benefit and fortune to um, meet and work with him we're going to bring him back again for a second year for a farming conference this year we we came last year we did it i'd love to think about a way to do maybe a chef's component Mm -hmm. to it which we Mm -hmm. can talk about or your buddy chris yep 
Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Chris, if you're Chris watching, would be great. let's do yeah. it. We, we could do that. Totally. Um, that, and then, you know, I kind of eschewed the third plate a little mm. bit, uh, because it was like, oh, I already know it. And then I, I sat down with it and I read it and, um, I was, you know, it was really, it was, you know, I felt the stuff, you know, I didn't need to, I didn't need to learn the essence of it, but I needed to learn the stories. Sure. You know, and I, I really, I really felt like the third plate was more than I would have, would have thought for sure. Mm-hmm. So, but Jean-Martin's book was, Got was it. great. Is there a technique that you're still intimidated by in the fields? Oh, or yeah. a crop that you won't grow or, you know, something oh, yeah. that's still like... I mean, I didn't think I used to grow good beets <laughs> until I'd start transplanting them, uh-huh. which is a which used to be a niche niche. And, and, and Transplanting meaning grow, starting them one place as, and then moving... Yeah, starting them in seeds. Uh-huh. Normally you direct seed. It's right. a, in, the, in the farming world, you're either direct seeding something into the ground mm. or you're transplanting it, you're starting it in your greenhouse and moving it, Got it. out. Uh, I still find a hard time with the cauliflower and cilantro. Um, flame weeding is still a challenge. Um, using the rotary plow to make raised beds is still a challenge. Sure. Okay. Good to know. Things I don't know. Mm -hmm. Things I don't have experience with. Yeah. This is going to be a good question for you. Good. You somehow get a call. I just want to say they've all been good questions. (laughs) I appreciate the conversation so far. You somehow get a call right after this interview that you've won an all-expenses-paid trip to go eat at your dream restaurant, and when you get there, there's someone you've always wanted to talk with waiting to have dinner with you. What is that restaurant, and who is that person? can be living or dead. Living or dead? Sometimes changes. Um, Yeah, I mean... I'm not well. You know, I don't know the whole world of culinary. I, You've it's, eaten it's, better it's, than most. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. It's hard. It's hard not to think that's back at Favakin. Mm. Um, to be honest, with you, it's hard not to think that's back at Favakin with Arvid. Arvid right. and I have talked about Favakin so much, and yeah. we've both been there, but separately. I've never mm. actually been there with him. I mean, I think a year ago, if you'd asked me, or eighteen months ago, or a year ago, I would have said Jean Martin, but mm. I met him and talked to him, so that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I don't know if I actually have okay. a great answer. That's for fine. That one. We I can don't. come back to it. Yeah. That's cool. Um, well, you don't have that much time. My last question I was going to ask was, what do you think chefs can be doing to help the next generation? Because that's so much of like what I preach here. And, and, and the reason that I started the content in the first place is because I got sick of chefs being frustrated with new cooks. So from what you've seen or, or new what cooks, like just new people coming in. Yeah. The, just like the, the idea that, and maybe you've heard this with other chefs that do dinners with you guys is like good help is so hard to find these days. And you know, like culinary school is putting out this batch of people who aren't necessarily up to the caliber that they expect. So I'm not in that camp. I don't believe that we should be blaming the, the young generation for not being good enough. I think there's something that we can then do to help. In, any, in some capacity. So what, whether it's through things like destigmatizing okay. mental health yeah, okay. or, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And when we say chefs, <clears throat> we pretty much mean probably like chef owner or someone that's got real control Figure over heads, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One is esoteric and one is, one is um, concrete. Hmm. You know, one of the great things I had was when I was at the outdoor school and one of the great things I see about farms is this idea of people coming together that are young and novices and idealistic and have visions and ideas and no experience and not as good as they think they are and all this stuff, but that sense of community. 
So create a way in which a community exists. That, that, that the idea of an individual breaks down. This idea of cohorts I find to be somewhat, you know, I shoot it and I probably still would. So I personally would shoot it, but I think there's a lot of people that like it. So that's a little bit of a weird thing. I'm, 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 I'm advocating for something that I don't think I would like. Mm. But like, because I remember when I first was at the outdoor school, you know, there was five full-time naturalists and five international naturalists. And the idea was the interns would leave after a year. Right. And I know the intern is a word that we use. And so like, but if we accept that, like a lot of the cooks might leave after a year, they're, you know, they're effectively an intern. That's a short term gig. They don't have the same buy in. And it felt a little bit like freshman year dormy to me. Right. But, but nonetheless, there was this element of we're in it together and we're kind of like learning together. And the, the, there's a crowdsourcing element mm. to the emotional and cognitive side of it. So we're all learning together. Um, but that, that we're part of something larger as well. So you break down the individual, not break down like psychologically break down, but you break down the individual structurally. Mm. And so this idea of a cohort, um, and there's something like, uh, you know, just uh, if if the growth isn't there when they get to you, you need to provide the growth. You can't lament, as you said, the fact that it's not there. And one way to do that is you, you, you need to think of yourself as continuing education. And whether that's moving people around stations, um, giving people mentorships, you know, pairing them with, with a long-term person. You know, again, that's the esoteric part. The concrete part is commit to yourself your company and your staff that you'll find a farm and go and go learn the story of food you know break down that wall the food does not and i know that conceptually people get it but emotionally and physically they don't if you think that food starts when you hear the rumble of the diesel truck and the and the back door slam up and the wax boxes walk in you're missing an opportunity, and I know there's a cost involved, but um, we honor and take care of the, that which we know. And when you know the backside of what food looks like, I think you'll you'll it it it's soft. It is mm -hmm. not a hard. It's there's no metric around this, mm -hmm. but I just would like to. Speak spiritually believe that you will treat the food differently and at the end of the day um <clears throat> you know again one of the things i want to talk about maybe next time is you know what do farmers do they engage people in a conversation around food right through mm -hmm. growing it mm -hmm. what do chefs do they engage people in a conversation around food by cooking it and what do dietitians do they engage people in a conversation around food about talking about it right so i think there's these three professions that all are doing the same thing and to me you know i'm, I'm very interested in bringing the dietitian the nutrition we didn't really talk about grad school but mm -hmm. like that element into it um and so you know the farmer is such the ally and there's such a synergy that can happen and i get the costs involved but I think that um, that's where the next the next generation it's a it's a D, there's a DIY element to mm -hmm. it right and um, I think that's where the next that's what I see is happening people there's no expert anymore right 
uh, we're, we're beginning to feel empowered to do whatever we want. Right. And that's a cool place to be. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question, but I think it does. It and what I'm, I guess I'm hearing and to maybe wrap it up with is that people can get in touch with you if they want to hang out on a farm. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. I mean, taking your team from California up to Seattle might not be the cheapest thing, but anybody that's in, there's a ton of people that listen from Seattle or, or Oregon or yeah. Vancouver or, you know, wherever. Yeah. Where can people find you, make that request, yeah. ask about any of the things that we pontificated on today? Like, where, where, where do you want to send people? I could see an iteration five years down the line where, like, a company wants to get more involved. Mm-hmm. in. You know, I can look on Instagram or, you know, I even thought about this as Homegrown. There was a period where Homegrown was maybe going to become a national brand. And I was like, hey, before you enter the Austin market, fly me down there. Right. I'll find you the equilibrium of, of Austin. Austin so you can do what we're doing here. Mm-hmm down there and I'll, I'll be honest I'm the first one to say I'm not the best farmer out there there's way better farms out there and I can see them a mile away um, and I'd love that you know I'd love to connect someone in Austin someone in in, in Jackson Mississippi right um, uh, someone up in uh, you know your neck of the, not even your neck of the woods <laughs> north of there Stevens Point Wisconsin mm-hmm. right or mm-hmm. Wauwatosa or yeah. Ashland you ever been up to Ashland I by haven't the way? been up to Ashland Bayfield Mm-mm. you ever been to the Apostle Islands no where'd you go up Thirty minutes south of Green Bay. Yeah. Okay. Well, they can go to equilibriumfarms dot com. Mm-hmm. They can email me. You can email me. <laughs> you. Yes. Yeah. You. Uh, Alex at equilibriumfarms dot com. Um, and I think so every now and then people get the name a little confused. So it's equilibrium. E C O L I B R I U M. Equilibrium. Um, equilibriumfarms.com um, Instagram's equilibriumfarms.com mm-hmm. what else we got Facebook Twitter we don't do that yeah. that much but but if you put in equilibrium farms it's us yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's um, linked up yeah but um, yeah I'd be really cu- and then you know through you mm-hmm. through the comment mm-hmm. section I'd be interested in For checking sure. that out but um, yeah I mean to me you know yes I want our company to succeed but I'm very interested in creating a new model for farms and by proxy for farms and restaurants. Oh, that's the last thing I want to talk about mm. next time. Maybe. Yeah. We clearly know a lot of what we've talked about. And obviously why I'm here is like farmer and chef. Right. So we know that farms and chefs are like this natural pairing. Right. And, um, it's like dogs and deer. If you watch the internet, right. Right. Uh, right. Or Russian people and weird road rage. <laughs> Which is the which is a lot of I end up at one a.m. watching a lot of Russian road rage. I don't know why. Um, so um, I believe that in this idea of again breaking down walls, expanding concepts, we view the farmer chef connection through the lens of the chef predominantly, because restaurants are cachet and they're in, and I. Th- think what equilibrium is trying to do and what i want to do is take that same pairing of a lot of those same concepts and ideas but view it through the lens of the farmer and see what happens so i'm not taking that great i'm not creating anything new i'm just looking at it from a different angle mm. it feels new right but favakin is the chef approach to farmer right all Correct. these places are the chef approach Correct. to food and and and, and farmer chef pairing and I just want to see it from the lens of the farmer and um, I just wonder 
is society interested in that? Mm-hmm. Can I, do I know what I'm talking about? Um, these are the things I think about. Yeah, yeah. So. Cool. Should we go taste these things? Yeah, let's go taste them. Cool. Thanks for okay. being on the show, man. Thanks, man. Bye, people. People of the internet. <laughs> And so ends the longest interview so far in the Emulsion podcast's history. That's a fun little trivia fact for season one fans of the show. Thank you so much for spending your time here. I sincerely hope you enjoyed it. As you could probably tell from all of the topics that we brought up that we didn't get around to talking to, there is so much white space for a part two of this interview. So please leave your questions or comments down below or tweet at me. Hey, even better, get in touch with Alex and the awesome team at Equilibrium Farms to start a conversation. The coolest part about these interviews should be, yes, the interviews, but also the fact that you can interact with these people in real life. So if you want to give your kitchen team a better sense of how organic food is grown, if you're a culinary school student and you want to put in some hours in the field so you feel better equipped to pass like your product ID class, or if you're a chef who wants to still work with food but the hustle and bustle of a kitchen isn't your speed, I can't recommend Equilibrium enough. They're they're in this exciting phase where they're still getting their feet wet, and in my experience, those are where some of the best learning opportunities are. So with that, all of Alex's links are in the description for your convenience, regardless of where you're listening from. My name is, of course, Justin Kana, and until next time, roll the outro. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram. That is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now's normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to. So I'm just going to get out of the, out of the way here. Excuse me. Pardon me.